Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. Appreciate your stopping. Any luck getting rides through here? No, not much. Say, that's a pretty bird. Yeah, surprised my wife. And the five dimes says he's a guaranteed warbler. Your money back. <laughs> you from around these parts? No, Texas. And you ought to know enough to say, sir. Yes, sir. Got two parakeets and a minor bird at home. Regular birdhouse. <laughs> yes, I got me quite a family. All these birds, three dogs. Don't know how many cats. Uh, kids are all grown up. I got five grandchildren. You married? Yes, sir. Any kids? Yes, sir. Boy, five. Got a pretty wife? Yes, sir. I think so. You ever had it from a white man? Nigger women know they can't get jobs unless they put out to their bosses. I've hired lots of them to pick crops, work in the house. I guarantee you I've had every one of them before they ever got their pay. You must have lots of colored children. <laughs> God knows. <laughs> Do you ever consider the woman? A nigger woman? Thing about down here, there, there was other cops saying anything about it. They know better. It gets pretty bad. Do you? Yes, I do. Why, we all do it around here. We figure we're doing your race a favor. Put a little white blood in it. Where'd you say you was from? Texas. You come down here to stir up trouble, did you? No, 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 sir. You know what we do to troublemakers here? No. We kill a nigger and toss him one of these swamps and nobody ever know anything about it. This is where you get off. I'll tell you how it is down here. We'll do business with you and your women. Other than that, as far as we're concerned, you're completely off the record.
context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade Justice in for another program to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Uh, that sound clip from the film Black Like Me, 1964, uh, based on the book, uh, same name, Black Like Me, John Howard Griffin, white man who did the uh, exercise of turning himself black to experience racism, white supremacy in a more authentic manner, I would guess. And uh, that scene, uh, and I mean, I could have played, I could have picked uh, about three, four, eight, twelve of those scenes just keep popping up in the movie, in the film, where white people constantly practicing racism, white supremacy in a sexualized, degrading, and perverted manner. I thought that would be... Uh, an accurate way to set the tone for today's program. Really, this is the core of uh, what our broadcast has been about. Um, what I have said consistently, racism, white supremacy, and sex, hand in hand, and the sexual abuse by racists worldwide. We've talked about it from day one on this program. We've talked about it. I think uh, our guest for today, in fact, I will start with a footnote. There was so much constructive information, some of it just spilled over into the footnotes uh, in this book. Uh, this is uh, footnote 57 on page 266. On July 15th, Tommy Paul Daniels, a white man from Macon, Georgia, raped a black babysitter, then bragged about it to his friend's boss and told him he planned to take his brother back to the house for another round with the teenager. I've even threatened to kill her when she cried out, Daniels boasted. The police arrived as Daniels and his brother were about to assault the girl again. Two months later, an all-white jury acquitted Daniels despite a citywide campaign by the NAACP. Now, this is referenced Andrew Manis, former guest on the program uh, in his book, uh, Making Black and White, an unutterable separation in the American century. Lots of references, lots of footnotes, uh, a real pleasure. Our guest for today's program is an assistant professor in the history department at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, her book published in 2010, tons of constructive information on exactly what we talk about on this program almost every time out, the sexual abuse that racists have heaped on black people. And this is worldwide. Her book is focused on the United States, but in my opinion, lots of evidence. You'll see the same pattern played out worldwide. Uh, our guest joining us live, Professor Danielle L. McGuire. Uh, Professor McGuire, are you with us? I am. Good evening. Great to be here. Outstanding. I want to, if I could make a request, if you could speak up nice and loud. Just want to make sure, sure. Uh, our listeners can hear. Beautiful. Is that better? Um, much better. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks so much for having me. For sure. For sure. Um, for our listeners, folks, you can get more information. Uh, her website at the dark end of the street. Uh, make sure I think I got so excited I forgot to give you the book title. At the dark end of the street, black women, rape and resistance 
a new history of the civil rights movement from Rosa Parks to the rise of black power. And again, you can go to the website. You can get more information, find out speaking engagements, all that good stuff. It is the address again at the dark end of the street dot com. Uh, Professor McGuire, for folks who might not have read your book, might be the first time they're hearing from you. Could you give us a little bit more background information so we'll have a better idea of who you are? Sure. I started uh, I started this research when I was in graduate school. I was studying for a master's degree in Afro-American history at the University of Wisconsin, and I heard a radio show on NPR, uh, and it was civil rights veterans talking about the Montgomery bus boycott. And, you know, I thought I knew something about the bus boycott. This was in 1998, and I had been studying the civil rights movement for a while. But I heard this veteran of the movement talking about somebody I never mentioned, I had never heard mentioned before. And this is what he said. He said, Gertrude Perkins is never mentioned in the history books, but she had as much to do with the bus boycott as anyone on earth. And, you know, I looked around at one of my friends. I said, who? Who did he say? Gertrude Perkins? I've never heard of Gertrude Perkins. Who is that? You know, I thought it was Rosa Parks. And so I did some research, and I found out that Gertrude Perkins was a 25-year-old black woman in 1949 who was walking home from a party when two white Montgomery police officers kidnapped her and took her outside of town and brutally raped her. She somehow found the courage to get back home, and then the next morning she went to the police station and reported the crime, perhaps even to the same men who had attacked her. Her testimony and her reporting of this crime brought African Americans in Montgomery together to protest what had happened to her and to protest this routine behavior by white Montgomery police officers. Their public protests kept the story on the front pages of even the white newspapers for two months and forced a grand jury hearing. And, you know, even though there was a grand jury hearing and even though there was this great protest, uh, the all-white, all-male jury refused to indict the two officers, and that was the end of the story. But what I found out in doing more research and looking more into this, because I still really couldn't figure out how Gertrude Perkins related the bus boycott since what happened to her was in 1949 and the bus boycott is many years later, uh, what I discovered was that in the decade leading up to the bus boycott, there were a series of attacks on black women similar to the Gertrude Perkins case that forced the black community to address and to rally behind these women to protect black womanhood and to defend their bodily integrity and their dignity. And that's part of the reason why so many people were organized for the bus boycott. And it's also part of the fact that a number of people who were assaulted prior to the bus boycott were assaulted on buses or by bus drivers or by police officers. And because black women made up 90% of the ridership for the buses, you know, it's not surprising that the bus boycott is led by women and is related to women's issues on the buses. So I was fascinated that there was this deeper history to the bus boycott, and I wondered if that was true for a story as common, as illustrious as the Montgomery bus boycott. Was it true also for Birmingham? Was it true for Freedom Summer 1964? Was it true for Selma? What about all the other civil rights campaigns? Was there a history of sexualized violence that helped to 
uh, propel organizing and be a catalyst for freedom movements. And what I found was that that was true, that in almost every major civil rights story that we know about or we think we know about, there's a history of unexamined political appeals for the protection of black womanhood and, and to protect them from sexual violence. And so what I try to do in the book is retell the movement, you know, the civil rights movement, from the perspective of these black women who are fighting for bodily integrity and for basic human dignity and to recast the movement as not just a struggle for civil rights but also for human rights and for, and for the basic right to walk freely through the world, which is something black women just couldn't do in the 1940s and the 1950s in the segregated South. We're going to cover uh, as much as we can, uh, brutally honest. I think this is important information and gives context. Anyone who has a discussion about so-called interracial relationships, this is an important piece of context um, for all of those discussions, in my opinion. Um, this program, Context of White Supremacy, I have unfortunately concluded that we are in a global system of racism White supremacy, I use those two terms as synonyms, same definition for both terms. Uh, the definition that I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, do you believe that such a system exists, and do you think that is an accurate definition? Absolutely, I think a system like that exists. I think that white supremacy is endemic, and it's, it's not just something that's uh, limited to the United States. It's certainly worldwide. It's global. You can see everywhere you go in the world people who are darker-skinned, uh, even in countries in which everybody is brown-skinned or dark-complected and, you know, where whites do not make up the majority. But in places all around the world, the darker skin that you have, the more likely you are to be poor, to be subjugated, to be oppressed. You see this in India. You see this throughout Africa. You see it in South America. You see it in Central America. You see it in Europe. You see it everywhere. And so white supremacy and this idea that um, – talent and intelligence comes with lighter skin is just a complete and absolute farce. But it's something that's been used to dominate the world for centuries. Mm. Wow. Uh, and you, just for our folks who maybe haven't seen a photograph, you are a white female, correct? I have, yeah. Okay. Right on. Okie dokie. This, uh, Man, I was I was uh, <laughs> I knew I was in for a treat when I opened uh, at the end of the dark. Excuse me, at the dark end of the street when I opened the book. Before I even hit page one, you have a quote that pretty much uh, sets the table uh, for what you're going to be doing in this book, and uh, I, I'm in total agreement <laughs> with the statement. I, I <laughs> could not agree more. Um, Gunnar Myrdal, uh, from his book, and I, someone just referenced uh, this book not too long ago. It's pretty well known. Uh, Gunnar Myrdal, An American Dilemma, The Negro Problem and Modern Democracy. Very old book, but very relevant. But his sentence, sex is the principle around which the whole structure 
Now, he says segregation. I'm going to swap and say white supremacy because I think that would be much more accurate. Sex is the principle around which the whole structure of supremacy is organized. Why is that sentence at the front of this book? Well, because I think that people have thought for a long time that white supremacy, that segregation, was simply based on race and was simply based on power. And they left the whole issue of sex and sexual violence and this fear of white, of what white people called miscegenation or interracial sex uh, out of the bigger picture. Um, if we take sex out of the picture, if we take interracial sexual violence out of the picture, then there's not a whole lot to talk about because the root of white supremacy I believe, and I think Gunnar uh, Myrtle is saying here in this quote, is sexual violence. And it's sexual violence that perpetuates uh, this fallacy of white supremacy. And it goes all the way back to slavery, um, when black women were used to create more slaves, right? Black women were purposely impregnated in order to increase white men's financial and economic standing increase their power. So, you know, slavery wouldn't have existed without sexual exploitation. And so the system that comes out of slavery, that is segregation and Jim Crow, cannot automatically change. I mean, this is a system that had been in place for a couple hundred years. So when slavery ends, the assumption is that the practices, the horrors that went with it also ended. But but we know that that's not true. I mean, we know that there was a period in which there were mass lynchings in the South, for example, and throughout the country, really. Uh, so we know that that happens after slavery. But I think that people stopped thinking that sexual violence had occurred as regularly as it did under slavery because black women were sort of free from, you know, the grasp of white men. They were out, off of their property. They were away from them. But that wasn't the case because so many black women had no choice but to accept jobs as domestics, working in white households. And they were vulnerable every single day that they were working there to sexual violence. Um, and so whites are able to maintain their power after slavery by using sexual violence as, as a weapon of terror to not only terrorize black women, but to terrorize their families, their husbands, their fathers, their children as well. And so we can't even understand, I think, the depth of racial violence in this country unless we also include, you know, sexual violence, racialized sexual violence. And so, uh, you know, sex is just one of the pillars upon which white supremacy stands, and it's a very important pillar. And uh, it's not something that... I think, really falls until 1967 when the Supreme Court finally overturns the ban on interracial marriage. Because, see, so long as white men could have illicit relationships with black women, coerced or consensual, as long as they never had to take responsibility, as long as the law prevented them from marrying black women or um, prevented them from taking responsibility for their children or sharing their estates with their natural-born children if they were black, 
so long as the law prevented them from doing it, they could get away with rape and with coerced sex with black women. But once that Supreme Court uh, overturned the ban on interracial marriage, something that was rooted in slavery, uh, black women, I don't think, were really free from that threat. So it's a long history, and it's, and it's all tied up with uh, this idea of white supremacy. Mm. Wow. I just, uh, as I said, this is a topic we talk about all the time. I'm actually stunned that it took this long for me to uh, hear about your book, because this is a topic that just, I, I'm in agreement. I don't think that you have a proper understanding of white supremacy if you do not understand uh, the intimate relationship between white supremacy and the sexual degradation of non-white people. Uh, just to make sure we're very clear, I'm talking to listeners, uh, Abiola Wabara, black female, she was just a guest on this program, a professional black basketball player in Italy. She talked about how as a member of the National Italian Basketball League, uh, that a white man, when she was in Rome, saw her out just going around touring, thought she was a prostitute. Just assume if you're a black person, you're a prostitute if you're here. He solicited her trying to uh, – and she's on the national basketball team. Right. Um, and, I mean, just saturate. That, kind of, that kind of assumption, I think, is it's, – it's, it's ancient. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's ancient. If this was an American in particular, that assumption ha- has been around in white men's minds since the Mayflower. Since even before that, since Jamestown, right? So whenever they see women of a darker color, uh, they assume that that woman is available for sex. I mean, so, I mean, whether or not this this person, you know, had a history of that or not, um, there is that stereotype, there is that assumption, and that goes back to slavery. That's rooted in that that deep, deep history. So, gosh, I'm sorry that she had that experience. It's terrible. Oh, it's it's all of us. I just I want to make sure uh, folks get the the global. They, I mean, literally, we are swimming in this. And white people, as I read from the footnote that you included, white people brag about sexually molesting black people, males, females, children. Uh, how many ever ways you want? I mean, I could have taken up a lot of time, but heading south, the film, uh, which is in Haiti. Monsters Ball, Pulp Fiction, A Time to Kill, The Scottsboro Case, Richard Bernstein's book, The East, The West, and Sex, where he has a whole chapter titled The Whole World as the White Man's Brothel. Uh, If we want to go current, Dominic Strauss-Kahn, I mean, it would just be endless. Megan Williams, it would be endless. Uh, This is an integral, core aspect of this system worldwide, and everyone, I hope, has a clear understand in fact we'll get it as we proceed um rosa parks this will make a great point if you leave out the sex you will be very confused and you'll miss a lot of what rosa parks did to work against white supremacy can you talk about her efforts to combat the degradation sexual degradation of black females yeah this is fascinating stuff so rosa parks uh you know she was an activist decades before the Montgomery bus boycott began decades before, you know, her stand on the bus that day made her sort of tiptoe into history because everyone assumed she did it because she had tired feet. Well, Rosa Parks was a radical, a militant activist, and she was quiet to be sure, but we shouldn't mistake, you know, her soft-spokenness for uh, a lack of militancy. Um, in 1944, for example, she was working for the NAACP in Montgomery as their secretary. 
But really, you know, she's not just a secretary. She doesn't take notes and file things away. She's a detective. And her job is to travel the dusty back roads of Alabama investigating crimes against African Americans. And she's particularly interested in rape cases. So in the fall of 1944, a black woman named Lucy Taylor is walking home from a church revival in Abbeville, Alabama. And a carload of white men kidnap her off the street drive her outside of town, and they gang rape her at gunpoint. When they're finished, they drop her off in the middle of town, and they tell her if she tells anybody what happened, you know, they'll kill her. But she tells. She tells her father. She tells her husband. She tells the local sheriff. And a few days later, she gets a phone call, and it's the Montgomery NAACP. And they say, you know what, we're going to send our very best investigator to figure out what happened and help you out. Well, that person turns out to be Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks shows up on her door, notebook and pen in hand, ready to take notes on the case. And then she carries Reese Taylor's story back to Montgomery, where she and the city's most militant activists organize the Committee for Equal Justice for Mrs. Reese Taylor. It becomes a nationwide campaign, and it's huge. I mean, it really only compares in scope to the campaign for the Scottsboro Boys in the 1930s. So, I mean, this is just incredible, and nobody knows this history of Rosa Parks. And I can't help but think that part of the reason why she's engaged in this work, part of the reason is that she had her own harrowing encounter with a white man in the 1930s. When she was 18, she was working as a domestic for a white family, and she was babysitting. You know, the white folks were gone, and she opened the door after she heard a knock, and it was this white man. He he came in, and he started talking to her, but it became very clear to her very early on that he was there to have sex with her, and he kept pressuring her. How about I give you some money? Boy, you're pretty. How about I do this? Nobody will ever find out. It, just assuming that that's just something she would do. And Rosa Parks wrote about this encounter in the 1950s, and it's just been discovered in her personal archive, uh, which is up for auction at Guernsey's Auction House in New York City. Um, but in this essay, she describes you know, this, this, the relentlessness of this white man, but more importantly, she describes how disgusted and distraught she was that he could just you know, act this way and assume that she would sleep with him, that, assume that she would have any interest in him. She was disgusted by him. And she rebuffed his, uh, his advances forcefully. And in the letter she says something like, you know, I would rather die before I give my consent to this man. I will never, never, never allow him to touch me. And she, she says in the essay that she says to him, you will have to kill me if you want to take me. And you will rape a dead body because you will never get me. I mean, this is just an incredible document, I think, because not only does it establish Rosa Parks' um, resistance and militancy. I mean, here is the granddaughter of Garveyites, right? I mean, her grandfather was a Garveyite, and so here is that granddaughter of, of a Garveyite. And not only does it, you know, sort of make her this bona fide militant, I think, and, you know, highlight her resistance and her force of uh, uh, forceful resistance 
but it also shows that she's got this this incredible knowledge of this long-standing abuse of black women. In the essay, she talks about her great-grandmother being raped multiple times as a slave woman and how this history has been, you know, used to degrade black women. She won't be a part of it. Um, and then she flips it on the man. She says, you know, you always talk about how you don't want to integrate and you don't want us to marry you, but you're the one who's busy trying to have sex with us. You know, it's not the other way around. So she turns the whole argument on its head, and she does this in 1931. It's just, I think, incredible. So it's not surprising to me that she shows up at Recy Taylor's door in 1944 and then helps organize a campaign to defend Recy Taylor from sexual violence and to protect her womanhood. Uh, but then we see Rosa Parks again doing the same thing in the 1970s on behalf of Joanne Little, a black inmate uh, in North Carolina who in 1975 is... Um, attacked when she's in jail by the white jailer, and she fights back. She uses an ice pick to attack him, and she ends up murdering him, and she escapes. You know, that, that case is about the, the willingness of the right of black women to defend themselves from sexual violence with violence if necessary, and Rosa Parks defends Joanne Little. In fact, she is so adamant that black women have a right to defend themselves that she forms the Detroit chapter of the Free Joanne Little Committee. So this is something Rosa Parks fought for her entire life, decades before the women's movement made rape a public political item, and decades before uh, any real conversation about sex and sexual violence. So, you know, she's, she's, a real, um, she's a really incredible activist and has so much more depth and so much more character than I think our uh, public history gives her credit for. Totally agree. Totally agree. And this is a pattern. Uh, I feel like this is being done purposely. Um, I'll get to that later. But pattern, we talked about that before. This is a repetition that I see where important, vital information gets conveniently left out. Uh, and many people would end up not being aware. And I think this is a big part of why we have not made greater efforts to end racism. But I want to do I want to do two things. I want to read a little bit from the book and get you to talk more about the ritualistic rape and how this was just rampant and known, even though a lot of black people didn't talk about this publicly, uh, but it happened so much and particularly the buses, because that comes up a lot in the book and a lot of the strife uh, during the fifties and sixties around integration, so-called integration and uh, stopping discrimination on the buses and enforcement officers. Uh, not only you've already touched on, uh, these are the folks that you got to go and make a report to uh, and their relationship to black people, uh, not the best. Often enforcement officers are also participating in this sexual violence against black people. And just to cover those two incidents, the enforcement officers and the buses, you have a section. This is on 53 of your book. I just want to read a little bit and get your get your thoughts. This is on page 53. Midway down. Gertrude Perkins, very important figure. The moon illuminated the dark street as Gertrude Perkins, a 25-year-old black woman, walked home a little unsteady on her feet after a night of partying. It was after midnight on March 27, 1949. Squad car inched toward her and stopped. Two Montgomery police officers, their badges glimmering in the moonlight, told Perkins to halt, then walked toward her, 
Smelling beer on her breath, they accused her of public drunkenness and ordered her to get into the car. When she refused, they grabbed her and pushed her into the back seat. They drove to the edge of a railroad embankment and dragged her behind a building where the uniformed men raped her repeatedly at gunpoint and forced her to have all types of sex relations. When they finished, they shoved Perkins into the car, then dumped her in the middle of the town and sped away. Now, I'm just moving forward. Lots of details. I'm just moving forward to share as much as I can. This is on page 55, same case. The mayor claimed Gertrude Perkins' rape charge was completely false. He insisted that holding a lineup or issuing any warrants would set a bad precedent since, as Goodwin argued, charges of this nature, even though untrue, are often used to destroy goodwill between races, end quote. Besides, he added, his policemen would not do a thing like that. Since black prostitutes had routinely serviced white police officers in the past in exchange for allowing the existence of brothels in Montgomery, perhaps Mayor Goodwin thought there was no need to resort to violence or force for interracial intimacies. Blacks in Montgomery knew better. The city's police force had a reputation for physical and sexual violence. Police brutality plagued the black community. The Perkins case was just the tip of the iceberg. E.G. Jackson Editor of Montgomery's black newspaper, the Alabama Tribune, urged action on the Perkins case and reminded readers of a similar assault three years earlier. Just too many details to get in. I just want to get the, the last one is about the buses because a lot of this sexual abuse happened on buses as well. Uh, this is on page 59. Uh, African-American women constantly complained about the atrocious treatment they received on the buses. Gladys Moore remembered that Montgomery's bus operators treated black women just as rough as could be, like we are some kind of animal. Joanne Robinson, an English professor at Alabama State and member of the increasingly militant Women's Political Council, argued that mistreatment on the buses was degrading, shameful, and humiliating. Black Americans, she insisted, were still being treated as things without feelings, not human beings. Bus drivers, Robinson recalled, disrespected black women by hurling nasty sexualized insults their way. Ferdy Walker, a black woman from Fort Worth, Texas, remembered bus drivers sexually harassing her as she waited on the corner. The bus was up high, she recalled, and the street was down low. They drive up under there and then expose themselves while I was standing there, and it just scared me to death. 
and from direct sexual harassment, excuse me, aside from direct sexual harassment, drivers referred to black women with contemptuous names like black niggers, black bitches, heifers, and whores. Della Perkins remembered a driver who regularly referred to her as an ugly ape. I just wanted to read that for uh, listeners so that they can get an idea of the details because it really, I think you really got to dig into this to know the inhumanity that was daily for black people, males, females, everyone. If you could talk, Professor McGuire, enforcement officers and their role, both participating in some of the sexual acts repeatedly and in these crimes not being punished, as well as what's happening on the buses, because you see the same sexualized violence and abuse on the buses. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you, know, you just nailed it. I, I, the police officers are really, you know, they're really guilty of a lot of these crimes. I mean, they're in positions of authority, and so are bus drivers. In many ways, they're in the same position of, of authority, because bus drivers, especially in Montgomery, were were deputized. You know, they were allowed to act like police officers in the sense that they could make arrests, they could uh, defend themselves. You know, a lot of bus drivers carried guns and weapons on the buses so that if things got out of hand, they could, they could you know, assert their authority with violence, which they did. Um, they slapped black women, they hit them, they sometimes beat them, um, they killed black men on buses for getting out of line or for refusing to stay behind the line, behind Jim Crow. So bus drivers and police officers have the same kind of authority, at least in Montgomery and in some other places too. But, but yeah, I mean, you, like I saw this happening again and again and again where, you, where, where it would be these men in uniform or these men in positions of authority, particularly police and bus drivers. And um, it's something they could get away with because where are the black women going to go? Who are they going to tell? The police? You know, where are they going to get assistance? Um, you know, the idea that you could just take a black woman whenever you wanted to was something that white men took for granted. And particularly, I think, white men in positions of authority or in positions of power. Um, they knew they weren't going to get in trouble for it. They assumed they weren't going to get in trouble for it. And they assumed, uh, and most of the time they were correct, that black women weren't going to report the crime. I mean, this is true even today. Most people don't report sexual violence. But, but then, you know, if, if a white man assaults you and, and you're a woman of color and he does it during Jim Crow when you can't even rely on the police for a basic courtesy, uh, you know, it's very unlikely that you're going to report the crime to the police because you don't expect anything from them. What you expect from them is more violence. What you expect from them is brutality. So... You know, you don't look you don't look to them for protection. Uh, you know, black women uh, that I interviewed told me that they often try to uh, protect themselves from police by avoiding them whenever possible, by um, you know walking a distance away from where police might be stationed or where they might you know hang out um, in order to protect themselves. And there is testimony from. You know, even people like Claudette Colvin, you know, a black teenager who's arrested before Rosa Parks in Montgomery uh, when members of the Women's Political Council wanted to start a boycott when Claudette Colvin was arrested. When she gets into the police car, when she's arrested for refusing to give up her seat to a white person and she's thrown in the back of a police car, one of her first thoughts is that the policemen might rape her. 
because people just understood that that's what police did. And so here's a 15-year-old who's been schooled in the kinds of atrocities that police had, you know, were capable of committing, uh, who worries that you know, because she's under arrest for violating a city ordinance, she might be raped as a result. Um, I think that's just an astounding sentiment, you know, that that's what she fears. But that just goes to show how common it was. And how often this happened, and that's why I use the term ritualistic, because you know every case that I encountered uh, in the newspapers, in the in the archives, in court documents, every case happens exactly the same way. It's as if white men talk to one another about how to do it. It's as if they've got strategies for securing their next victim. And they, they attack women the same ways over and over and over again. Um, and it's only because black women were willing to testify about it publicly that it began to it began to stop. On that you know, on that scale. Mm. So so these are so so yeah, I mean and that's the other thing, is that when you look at the you know, the relationship between black women and white police officers and then you look at the way the bus drivers treated black women who have no choice but to ride the buses. I mean, they've got to get from the black side of town to the white side of town every single day to go to work. So, you know, the bus ride is the bane of their existence. And it's not surprising then if you look at the bus boycott through the lens of sexual violence that so many black women were willing to stay off the buses and walk for a year because they were just tired of being treated like things, you know, commodities to be passed along from one person to the next, used and abused, tossed aside. Um, and I think that, that that helps us understand why, you know, why so many women were willing to walk to protest segregation on the buses, because it's not just about segregation. Mm-hmm. It's about human dignity. So. Context of white supremacy. Again, our guest, Professor Danielle L. McGuire, uh, her book, At the Dark End of the Street. Um, I guess the only thing I can throw in, uh, I, I don't believe it's as if. Uh, I believe white people pretty much have codified uh, the act of sexually abusing black people worldwide. But, you know, uh, on page 57, I think this is very important. Uh, because you talk about it in the book, it, it is uh, almost unheard of, really, uh, for a long period of time under white, supremacy, uh, under white supremacy for white people to even think it possible for a white man to rape a black female. I mean, that is just absurd for many, many years under white supremacy. And Dominic Strauss-Kahn, would, I mean, anyway, page 57 uh, of the book, and I think this is very important, the psychological trauma for the few courageous people who are willing to, to, hey, I was mistreated, I was raped, they're not going to get away with this, I'm going to challenge them. You talk, uh, page 57, Flossie Hardman. Mm -hmm. In February 1951, a white grocery store owner raped a black teenager. Sam E. Green regularly employed Flossie Hardman, a black 15-year-old, as a babysitter and frequently drove her home at the end of her shift. One night, instead of taking Flossie directly home, Green pulled to the side of a quiet road and raped her. 
Flossie immediately informed her parents of the assault, despite the odds of bringing Green to justice. They decided to press charges. Meanwhile, Rufus A. Lewis, a World War II veteran and celebrated football coach at Alabama State University, launched a campaign to bring Green to trial. Backed by Lewis and many of his fellow veterans, the Hardmans succeeded in bringing Green to court. But when an all-white jury returned a not guilty verdict after deliberating for only five minutes, African Americans decided to take the matter into their own hands. Uh, you cite a lot of different cases where there's no verdict at all, uh, there's no charges, they don't even do a lineup. This sort of, it's just blatant disrespect. I think this is intended as a part of the sexual degradation that going to someone to say that I've been mistreated, it's not even acknowledged. It's five-minute verdict, right. not guilty, five minutes. Can you talk about that? Right. No, I, you know, there's nothing that's more shameful in, in some ways and, and more degrading. I mean, here's a woman who's willing to risk her life to testify about being assaulted and white people treat it as a joke, as as something to be dismissed, to, you know, get get over with as quick as possible. Because, you know, I mean, this goes, again, back to their sort of slave mentality is that, um, or slave owner mentality, I should say, uh, that they could do whatever they want with a black woman and black women can't be raped because, you know, the assumption, the stereotype is that they're naturally easy, that they're Jezebels, that they always want sex. And, of course, that's not true. Uh, that's what they believe. And so, so the idea that a, a teenager um, could be raped is just they can't even comprehend that that's possible. Um, besides, they're not willing to set a precedent and say that it's wrong because then they won't have access to it if they want it. So um, this happened quite often in the Gertrude Perkins case. You know, the police officers, they knew who she was talking about. You know, there's only a couple people on duty each night, and she could describe what the men looked like. She could describe their, their patrol car. Um, but the mayor and the commissioner, they weren't even willing to do a lineup so that she could identify them. They, weren't even let, they wouldn't even let her see who was on duty that night to see the names. So, so they helped protect the assailant. And um, in that sense, they aided and abetted a felony and two felons. So, I mean, this is the police. This happened again and again and again. Uh, you know, what's astounding to me is that black women kept testifying about it. They kept reporting these crimes. And, you know, I think that the only reason why some white men were uh, sentenced and were convicted was because black women relentlessly uh, testified about these things and refused to be silent about them. They refused to be silenced by white people's um, degradation and white people's uh, ignorance and, and bestiality. Mm. I, I definitely want to uh, make sure I get the Joan Little case and uh, get callers as well, but uh, I want to just back up because I think this is a very important point. Um, there is an enormous amount of hypocrisy um, documented in your book where you have white people, uh, James Eastland, uh, 
uh, Strom Thurmond. <laughs> These are prominent white right. uh, supremacists of the uh, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, and their constant rallying cry, uh, you know, all this so-called integration is going to lead to mongrelization of the races, and they're going to be sleeping with our daughters, and, and this is going to be terrible. They'll be marrying us. They'll be looking for uh, equality means marrying white people. That's what this is all about. And, I mean, this is tired how often this gets repeated over and over and over. Right. Uh, all the while, some of the same people who are saying this are raping and sleeping with black people. Uh, I was even surprised Strom Thurmond, uh, that didn't get brought up in your book, but I know Strom Thurmond, his family even acknowledged, yes, he has sex with his uh, housekeeper's daughter. And this is another one where the age difference is huge. I think she's in her teens. He was 22 at the time. Can you talk about this contradiction where you've got white people coming out? Don't, we're not sleeping. Get out of here. You're going to mind. And then five minutes later, they're chasing your 15-year-old down the street. That's right. I mean, you know, what, 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 what white men and women, you know, white women supported this with their silence too. Um, what they did was they turned their own behavior and projected it onto black men. So they kept talking about black men being rapists and black men sneaking into your daughter's room or wanting to marry your daughter, or, you know, trying to um, mongrelize the race by being with white women. And the whole time, it's a projection of white men's own deviant behavior with black women and you know you have to think about it and what does it gain white men what does it gain white men to portray black men as rapists while at the same time uh being rapists themselves well it enabled them to control a whole society right they control white women by putting white women on pedestals women who cannot be touched by anybody except their husbands Okay. They cannot be desired. They cannot be looked at. They, can, they are off limits, completely off limits. This puts white women in a position in which they're statues, and statues are, aren't good for anything. They're stone. They're, they're good to be looked at, and that's it. They're useless to society. Okay? So they control white women and white women's uh, reproduction that way. And in that sense, they control their own line of uh, ancestry. Right? They control the inheritance rights to their children through white women. They also control black women because they use rape as a weapon of terror. So the threat is always there. So black women are under constant threat of sexual violence or other kinds of racialized violence. And, of course, they use sexual violence and, you know, in real ways and in in metaphorical ways to control black men. By portraying black men as rapists, it keeps everybody afraid of them and everybody wants to keep them in a box, quite literally often in prison or, you know, by killing them. So sexual violence becomes this this tool through which white men are able to maintain their political, their social, and their economic positions of power. So it's not surprising to me that white men can do this, right, can be such hypocrites because it, it, it gives them power. And they use it to control a society that they lord over. Um, and it gives, it gives poor white folks, you know, this sense of superiority. Um, white men, superior, superiority over white women and over black women and, of course, over black men. Um, and so I think that's part of the reason, you know, why uh, Gunnar Myrtle says that so concisely. You know, sex um, sits at the center of segregation. That this is what the whole society is structured around. Um, is sex. 
And but you're absolutely right. I mean, here you have Tom Brady in Mississippi, a Mississippi judge who is essentially like the father of the White Citizens Council, this organization that is pretty much like an uptown KKK. You know, they're not going to put on the robes and commit, you know, heinous acts of violence in public, but they'll make sure you can't get a mortgage, that you can't get a car, that you don't have a job, that you don't have heat or electricity in your home, okay? So they're going to use economic terrorism to destroy black communities. So that's the White Citizens Council. So Tom Brady is the father of the White Citizens Council. He's a judge, okay, a judge in Mississippi. And he's constantly railing about the fear that integrating schools is going to lead to miscegenation and to mongrelization and interracial sex. He's constantly haranguing about that. So when he gets in his courtroom a real case of interracial sexual violence, a real case, not this imaginary threat of interracial sex happening around every school desegregation case, but a very real case. What does he do? He makes sure the men don't get time in prison. Why? Because they're white and the victim is black. So they're all full of uh, hooey, <laughs> and it, you know, it's totally hypocritical, but they do it to maintain power, and that's why they do it. I mean, it's just that simple. Mm-hmm. And that and that's sadistic. Context of white supremacy. Um, I get. I do think it's it's very important. Uh, non-white people who are listening to the program. Uh, I have a slightly different opinion. I think white women are able to access that same power. Uh, I do not uh, view the system of, my view on white supremacy is that white men and white women, I view them as equal partners. I've seen too many cases where white women are able to exercise that sexual power, particularly with black males, where they're able to go and do their Absolutely. own sneaking out. And then when someone finds out, oh, he raped me. <laughs> and right. I mean, it works the same way. I've seen them be able to do it. I definitely see the evidence that white people, uh, white men, not pleased about that at all, very upset. But, I mean, it's just too many. Uh, Scott's, bro, you got them in your books. There's too many of those where white women, they're doing the same thing. And, as you said, they are aiding. They are complicit even when it's the white men just going out and raping people. Absolutely. And not saying anything. No, you're absolutely right. And I didn't mean to imply that I thought white women were victims. Uh, I don't think they're victims. I think that they're complicit in the entire structure of white supremacy. But I do think that 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 by making white women off limits sexually to anybody but their white husbands um, puts them in a pretty precarious situation and 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 puts them on a pedestal, which no white woman can live up to. It's not surprising that they, you know, go searching for relationships someplace else, and then they call on that very system that degrades them to free them from, you know, uh, exposure, right? So they call on it when they want it, and they try to run from it when, when it hinders them. But nonetheless, I think you're absolutely right in that white women are consistently silent about the ways in which white men sexually exploit and denigrate black women, and their silence makes them complicit. There's nothing more to say about that. Their silence makes them complicit. Well 
well said. Um, I have heard of Viola Louisa. Uh, I've heard of that case. They have documentary films. Um, another degrading example of white and the sexual man, the sexual degradation in that case. I was almost going to sound clip. There's a documentary film where you hear white people saying, uh, oh, when we found the body. There was a quart of semen in her. And I mean, just <laughs> trifling racist behavior. Uh, how and this you have a whole chapter in the book that details a lot of what happened, the trial and all that. I know about Viola Louisa. I did not know anything uh, about what happened with Joan Little, and I suspect a lot of our listeners didn't either. Um, and I want to actually get some time to shout that because Rosa Parks, she pops back up. You already said she got involved yeah. in that case. Um, and I was I was cheering. I mean, there were literally this is a passage when I read this. I was so happy just to see this black female uh, not taking this abuse from these white racist barbarians uh, and the abuse that they dumped on us ritualistically. Um, this is uh, on page 222 of your book, and this is actually from the trial uh, that I just, I mean, this is incredible. I will just let her take it away. Page 222, Joan Little, she was uh, a black female. She was in prison. A uh, white officer att attempted to rape her. She defended herself. She ended up killing him with an ice pick and escaping. Uh, she goes to trial. Uh, they initially charge her with first-degree murder. During the course of the trial, the charges get dropped to second-degree murder because the prosecution doesn't have any evidence uh, for first-degree. And this is uh, when she finally takes the stand uh, to talk about what happened to her. This is Joan Little, page 222. Uh, wearing a peach pullover and checkered pants, the petite woman testified that she killed Clarence Alligood. Am I saying his name correctly? Alligood? Alligood. Okay. Alligood in self-defense after he forced his way into her cell. She spoke so softly at times that jurors and spectators leaned forward, straining to hear the details of what happened almost a year earlier. Choking back tears, Little told the jury how Alligood brought her sandwiches and snacks often after midnight without her asking. After about three weeks in jail, she said Allie Good started making passes at her, talking about how nice I looked in my gown and that he wanted me to know, excuse me, that he wanted to me to know, have sex with him. Well, what did you say? Paul, her attorney, asked. I told him to leave and that if he didn't, I was going to tell. On cross-examination, Prosecutor William Griffin asked her why she did not follow through on the threat to report Alligood. Coming up as a black woman, Little told the jury it is, it's a difficult thing. It's a question of your word against a white person. All of Alligood's late-night visits with snacks and sandwiches were a ploy. The defense claimed to manipulate Little into having sex with him. When he walked into her cell in the early morning hours of August 27, 1974, he had a silly grin on his face, a weird look, Little testified. He said that he had been nice to me and it was time I be nice to him. Holding back tears, Little told the jury that she rebuffed Ollie Good and to him that she wasn't going to be nice to him. Ollie Good was unmoved. 
she said he slipped off his shoes, walked into the cell, and started to fondle her breasts. You might as well tell, little claimed Ali Good said, as he started to feel all over me. The other police officers, he said, aren't going to believe you anyway. With a tiny voice, barely audible in the courtroom, Little told the jury that she began to cry when Ali Good stepped closer, pulled her nightgown up over her head, and stuck his left hand in between my legs. With his right hand, she said, he grabbed her neck and said, Give me some pussy. I was scared, she said, so I just let him do that. Little continued with her raw testimony. She described how the jailer removed his pants, then forced her to her knees, and, ice pick in hand, pushed her head down between his legs and told her to suck him. I didn't know whether he was going to kill me or what, she said, trembling. She wept as she described how she grabbed the ice pick when his grip loosened. I reached for it, and it fell, she said. He grabbed for it. I grabbed for it, she said, burying her face into a handkerchief. She looked at the jury, her eyes puffy from crying, and told them that she got to the ice pick first and struck at him each time he came at me. In the struggle... She said she lashed out at Ollie Good after he grabbed her wrists and ran when he finally fell down. Uh, this is page 222, 223. Um, incredible case. Um, if you could share some more details about what happened uh, in the little case and ultimately her acquittal for killing this white man who raped her. Right. I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's an incredible case. It's in the the mid 1970s, so it's in the midst of the black power movement and uh, the women's movement. And so the people who rally around Joanne Little are a pretty eclectic crowd. Um, the civil rights movement, I think, changed the procedures for juries in North Carolina and made it possible for Little to have a half-black, half-white, half-male, half-female jury. You know, her peers wouldn't get anything like that uh, Earlier, you know, Reese Taylor had an all-white, all-male jury. Uh, Gertrude Perkins had an all-white, all-male jury. Uh, so the civil rights movement changed that, and Little has the benefit of a jury of her real peers. Um, but it is this incredible case. I mean, you know, she she killed him, and she's tiny, and he was significantly bigger. I mean, she's just a little wisp of a woman. And uh, something came over her, and she stabbed him to death multiple times. Um, and then she ran. And for a while she hid out in uh, in a neighborhood sort of uh, liquor house. Um, this old man protected her, and there was an all-point search out for her with orders to shoot on sight if anyone saw her. I mean, just treating her like, you know, a completely crazed criminal, which she was not. Uh, and she finally turned herself in and went to trial, and it's just this incredible case. Uh, but I think it shows how far black women had come since the Reese Taylor case of 1944, and 
showed that their efforts, their testimonies, their resistance had enabled this very situation, had enabled Joanne Little to uh, testify on her own behalf, had enabled the courts to see her as a human being, had enabled uh, her attorneys to document this long history of sexual violence against black women and place the attack on Joanne Little in that context. Um, that was all very important, and it wouldn't have happened without all these testimonies of black women who came before her. So they really paved the way for her acquittal. And the acquittal is an historic thing. Um, you know, most white men who were accused of raping black women didn't get convicted at all. Uh, the first time white men get a life sentence is in 1959, for example, and that's in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, but they don't even serve life sentences. You know, they're out of prison after four or five years. So, so this is a really a powerful case where um, not only does it show that black women um, can be raped, but that Joanne Little was assaulted and that she had the right to defend herself and that that right extended to killing her assailant. Um, it's really incredible. And, and Rosa Parks, of course, believes that black women have a right to defend themselves with violence if necessary. And that goes back to her history, too. I mean, she, um, like I said, was a granddaughter of Garveyites. Her grandfather kept guns in the house to protect themselves with violence, if necessary, from the Klan during the nadir of black history. Uh, Rosa Parks, you know, politically, I think, aligned herself more closely with Malcolm X than she did Martin Luther King, and she was a huge fan of Malcolm X. So, you know, if you know that part of her history, if, if, if we had a better understanding of her radicalism, we, we could, you know, place her actions on defense on, on behalf of Joanne Little in a better context. So it really is an astounding uh, case, really, really incredible. Yet another case I am not surprised that has been conveniently forgotten and people uh... – People, not very many people know about that case, and I would say just comparison contrast, uh, I think a lot more people know about that Viola Louisa case than what happened with Joan Little, and I think that is yet another ugly example of racism, white supremacy that, uh, I mean, this is, in my opinion, extremely important, and I think something that uh, would really be empowering for black females. I mean, hey, <laughs> you do not have to lay down for abuse from anybody. You have every right to defend yourself, and especially, I mean, Yes. At any rate, I will. Uh, that's right, and I think that's why black women at the time wore T-shirts that said "Power to the Ice Pick." <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's sort of a play on um, black power, but you know, a power to the ice pick, and and I think that 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 expresses that. You know, black women have the right to do that, and so, you know, I'm not surprised that that history has been largely forgotten in uh, favor of a, a story of a white female martyr. Um, that's our ongoing problems with race and white supremacy that continue to stay, the way that we tell history and what we include and what we don't include, what's valid and what's not valid. And I think that things that happen uh, during the black power movement and cases where black people actually murder white people in retaliation or as self-defense, those things get written out of history uh, pretty quickly. Or, or those people get demonized. Sometimes both. Um. Exactly. Yeah, I also I wanted to make sure I threw in before I hit the phone lines. I know Justice she has uh, some questions and listeners. Uh, if you're on the talk shoe line, it's star eight. If you're on the free HD line, it is star six. But you have uh, Karen Galloway, uh, first black female to graduate from Duke Law School. Uh, huge part of the case with Joan Little. Uh, it 
unfortunately, not her accomplishments, but just bringing up Duke, unfortunately, reminded me of the Duke lacrosse case. Um, just, you know, ongoing. I'm just I'm trying to throw out as many examples as I can during the course of the program so that people will understand uh, the central nature of this sexual abuse. And it's not just, again, a black female. Everybody. Um, Tawana Brawley's case, Abner Lewima. Um, I mean, it's too many. It's way too many of these, and it should be more than enough motivation for us to get cracking solving this problem. Uh, Justice, if you have some questions for Professor McGuire, your line should be open. Uh, please feel free. Make sure I have the correct line. Uh, oh, okay, got you. Sorry about that. Had the wrong line. Justice, your line should be good. Please feel free. Hello, can I be heard? Hi. Yes, ma'am. Uh, greetings, uh, Miss McGuire. Um, nice to talk to you. How do you think uh, your 2010? Uh, um, how do you think your 2010 uh, uh, publication is constructive in working against the system of racism, white supremacy? Well, I think, you know, I hope that. Um, by speaking truth about white supremacy, that it helps us to understand how it functions and that we understand the historical context so that if we remember the past correctly, we can work to change the present. Um, I also hope that it brings, um, it sheds some light on black women warriors uh, in the past who, who spoke out about sexual violence before white women did in the, in the women's movement and that they should be credited for paving the way for all women. It should be recognized uh, and, and honored for that. And I also think that um, we need to start telling the real story of the civil rights movement. It needs to be more inclusive of, of not just issues, like issues like human dignity and bodily integrity, but also of, uh, you know, ordinary, everyday women who fought back when their lives were at risk. I mean, if we have a better understanding of how history happens, how we can make change, you know, then I think we can be better activists ourselves and work towards creating a better future. Um, you know, if we keep believing that Rosa Parks stood up just or refused to stand up just because she had tired feet, it, it does a disservice to young people everywhere because everyone would just be waiting for tired feet, right? Um, but, but if we understand her as a, as a radical activist who, who worked every single day for decades to make change, quietly, patiently, but with a kind of um, forceful determination and, um, and powerful resilience and resistance, then I think that we can, you know, teach young people to have that kind of thing instead of just, you know, waiting on the zeitgeist. So that's what I hope it does. Um, and I hope it gives a context to cases like the Dominique Strauss-Kahn case. I mean, I think that what we saw in that case is, is a legacy and reflection of this history that I've tried to document. On a, on a more practical uh, note, I should say, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, uh, go ahead. I was going to say on a, more, on a more sort of like a tangible note, I will say that uh, just recently the Alabama state legislature, including the governor, issued a formal apology to Reese Taylor who was gang-raped in 1944, and they apologized for the state's malfeasance and for their uh, inability to properly pursue uh, the case against um, 
the white men who assaulted her. And I think that, you know, that's a first step towards acknowledging her dignity as a human being and hopefully a first step towards um, considering some kind of reparations for her and for other women like her. How often do you uh, talk to black people when it is not related to work or your research? Um, you know, I'm one of those white people who say, well, I have black friends. I'm kidding, of course, but but um, I do. And I try to make, you know, my community, my life as diverse as possible. I go out of my way to be in more... Uh, diverse places. I frequently speak at black churches. Um, I, you know, talk every day with my students. I mean, it is related to my work, but my work is my life, and I teach black history and study it because it's my passion. And so, you know, I don't do it just because I get paid. Um, I do it because it's my mission, and it's what I believe in, and I think it's, you know, how I can work to undermine white supremacy as well. Should normal people have uh, sex with white people? Pardon me? Should non-white people have sex with white people? Well, I think that, you know, who who you want to have sex with is totally up to you. And, you know, I'm not against uh, any kind of relationships um, so long as they're based on love and respect. I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with people crossing racial boundaries if they love one another and if they are attracted to one another. In your view, have the uh, objectives uh, of the system of white supremacy changed since Dr. King and Rosa Parks died? Have the objectives of white supremacy changed? I mean... I'm not I'm not sure. I I'm not sure if the objectives have changed. I mean the objective is to maintain power, um, economic, social, political for white people. Um, I just think that the methods have changed, not necessarily the objectives. And the methods I think are more insidious and less visible. Um, you know, there aren't signs pointing to the back of the bus for certain people and to the front of the bus for others, right? Um, the way that Jim Crow made so explicit, I think that white supremacy functions uh, the way it always did in the North, for example. You know, it's de facto segregation as opposed to de jour. So it's not set in stone by the law, but it's set um, by behaviors and patterns and economics and access to opportunity and access to good schools and good jobs and good homes. And it's, it's, it's dictated by um, predatory lending and unequal sentencing and so I think that I think that in some ways the objectives of white supremacy are still very clear, but the methods um, are different. But um, the outcome, in some ways, is the same or worse. Why do white people want racism, white supremacy here? What was the last word? Why do white people want racism and white supremacy? Uh, here, here, here in the United States. Uh, uh, here meaning like uh, existing. 
Um, well, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I don't spend a lot of time talking to white supremacists, but I imagine it's because um, they want to maintain power and control, um, and that, and that those things, white supremacy, racism, um, enables them to achieve it. I mean, it's a way of maintaining um, their superiority. Since you write a book about uh, white men ra uh, raping black women, uh, I was just curious, um, have you uh, raped anyone? Uh, has anyone raped you? I have not raped anyone. Um, I am a victim of sexual violence, and I should say I'm a survivor of sexual violence. I was assaulted in 1998 when I was a college student. What are your views on uh, reports of Dominique Strauss-Kahn uh, raping uh, Mrs. Diawa? Um, you know, I think that Dominique Strauss-Kahn is a man who's used to getting what he wants, and when he doesn't get what he wants, he takes it. He has a history of assaulting women and degrading women. He has a history of uh, sexually molesting women. Um, it's pretty clear that something really awful happened in his hotel room, and I believe that he assaulted uh, that he assaulted her. And um, I applaud her willingness to speak out. Uh, I'm I'm devastated by the Manhattan District Attorney's um, decision to uh, you know end the case and to not bring charges. I think it was wrong. I think that you know they fell into the same traps that that so often prosecutors do with women everywhere, but particularly women of color, and they assumed that her reputation, that her history um, somehow would, you know, excuse the behavior of Dominique Strauss-Kahn, and never once did they talk about his history or his reputation or his behavior. So I think it was a sexist decision. I think it was a racist decision. I think the way that she was treated by the press and the way that they um, – dug into her history was appalling and irrelevant to the case and that he should have stood trial and let a jury decide what happened. So I think there's another rapist free in the world today. Um, I was just curious, uh, uh, are you or uh, have you ever uh, been in a uh, sexual relationship with a black person or a non-white person? I think that that's a really personal question. I prefer not to answer. Given your research, uh, what patterns do you see of how white people keep information from non-white people? Can you repeat the question? Given your research, uh, what patterns do you see of how white people keep information from non-white people? Um, well, I mean, we have a history uh, in which, you know, the history of slavery was originally written by white people who thought that the institution of slavery was relatively benign and that Reconstruction really was, you know, Negro domination as opposed to, uh, 
you know, this moment of interracial democracy that was really fruitful and important. Um, and it took someone like uh, W.E.B. Du Bois writing Black Reconstruction to change the way white historians started to think about Reconstruction, but it took a really long time. So, you know, just in terms of, you know, the historical field, I think that um, obviously history has been written uh, by the so-called masters. And um, and that, I think, has, you know, that has changed um, dramatically since, you know, the early 20th century. And you get a, a history that's, I think, much more honest now than ever before. So um, I'm not really sure I can answer that question. I mean, I haven't seen a whole lot of deliberate uh, keeping of information from people of color in my field, but I can't say that that's not true or true for people in other professions. Um, you know, certainly I think I've read plenty of news stories about um, predatory lending, and, and there you've got, you know, whole institutions dedicated to feeding black uh, uh, home buyers misinformation about access to loans and interest rates, et cetera, in order to make money off of them. But obviously there's a history of this. I'm sorry? I said obviously there's a history of that, right? So. Okay. Uh, that will be all for now. Go ahead, Beth. Okay. Context of white supremacy uh, for the folks. If you're on the talk shoe line, it's star eight. If you're on the free HD line, it's star six on the Q, uh, on the free HD line. Um, I did want to point out because you also talk about the uh, the Loving case, uh, which right. struck down Supreme Court decision struck down. The uh, anti-miscegenation laws, um, state of Virginia. Um, that this actually, I'll just go to the book so I can share what you uh, you wrote about the case. This is uh, page two. Give me two seconds. I lost my uh, my footnote. Two o one. All right. On two o one. Yeah, I'll just read. This is uh, the final paragraph. Uh, the Loving versus Virginia decision sing- singled, signaled excuse me, the emancipation of black women and constituted another nail in Jim Crow's coffin. Along with the NAACP's legal challenges to Southern jury discrimination and unequal sentencing, the passage of the 1968 Civil Rights Act granting bodily protection for civil rights workers and canon and loving verdicts ushered in the new day of justice for black women that John McCray had wondered about after the Tallahassee case in 1959. State v. Cannon and Loving v. Virginia helped dismantle the legal infrastructure that denied black women dignity, respectability, and bodily integrity. These cases destroyed the racial and sexual argument for segregation and white supremacy. The century-long struggle to protect African-American women from white sexual violence 
built on the testimonies of black women like Ida B. Wells, Reese Taylor, Gertrude Perkins, and Betty Jean Owens had laid the groundwork for this victory. African-American women's willingness to speak out against sexual violence to publicly testify about interracial rape in the segregated South and to organize campaigns to defend the full legal and social rights slowly destroyed the legacies of slavery. Uh, this is on page 201 at the end of the dark street. Um, I read that and I had concerns there because, again, I'm thinking now a white female wrote this book. Um, and I read, when I read that paragraph, my concerns were that I think it is extremely problematic. And if it's a white person who's making this argument, I generally think I suspect that this white person could be practicing racism, white supremacy to say that this is working against racism. Racism is being beaten down by white people saying, OK, we will allow white people and non-white people to be married Um this, you know, represents some sort of work against racism. Uh, I find that to be very problematic because obviously white people and non-white people having sexual intercourse has been going on for the duration of racism, white supremacy, and it has not done anything to solve this problem. Uh, non-white people and white people getting married, I also don't really see where that has done much to solve this problem, and there isn't even that much of it. I think the censuses, uh, the U.S. census, you don't even have 5% of the people that are married uh, are white and black. Uh, I don't even think it's 3%. I think it's uh, it's extraordinary low. Uh, I just I think that you have to understand I think that that the ban on interracial marriage was rooted in denying black women legal access to uh, the man who fathered her children. Okay? It denied her the legal respectability of a real relationship. So you know, that law was put in place in the 1600s in Virginia to keep black women down and to keep black men down too, okay? What it really did was enabled white men to take all of their wealth and transfer it only to their white children, children born from their white wives and not their other children, children born from their black, uh, you know, conquests or lovers, right? And so that law, the ban on interracial marriage, was a staple, was a pillar of slavery and a pillar of segregation by denying black women the dignity and the respectability of a legal relationship, not just for her, but for her children, that were fathered by white men. It allowed white men to deny those children parent, parentage and to deny them then their inheritance rights. And a lot of these men were very wealthy. So in that sense, it kept black families, in many ways, mired in poverty over many decades, kept the land out of will, kept them out of the black children's hands. So... It's not about the white to have sex with white people. It's not about that at all. It's about the legal relationship giving dignity and respect to these consensual and sometimes in the past coerced relationships so that inheritance rights 
wealth, uh, uh, paternity, and those kinds of things can be legally acknowledged. The ban on interracial marriage made paternity not even an issue. So that's why that's important, because it really is one of the last vestiges of slavery to fall. Now, of course, Loving v. Virginia didn't usher in this new day of racial harmony and, you know, kumbaya. It didn't. But it, it enabled, I think, black women who had children by white men or who had illicit relationships with white men to have the legal and dignified relationship recognized by the state that they deserved mm. if they wanted it. Hmm. So it's not about, like, the gates are open, go and get married and have fun, or go enjoy free sex with the members of the other race. It's not about that at all. It's about getting rid of this this blight, this this dark stain of slavery. Hmm. Interesting uh, verbiage there, the dark stain of uh, slavery. Um, I, I just, I don't agree and that's fine. I don't, I don't look for agreement with uh, all the guests. Um, I don't see anything that under the system of white supremacy, which we agree does still exist. Uh, loving certainly did not end white supremacy. Anything right. that looks like it is promoting, Hey, we are going to ease up on racism. The sex thing. We're all right with that. In fact, Marriage, we're all right with that, too. All of that I view as refinement. I think that was what you said. You don't think the objectives of white supremacy have changed. The practice has changed. And I would I would simply point at your book. Uh, I'll make, I've read a lot. I think it has a lot of great information. I would use uh, your book and the passage where you talk about the uh, – well, it's not necessarily about the Little Rock integration, but you're talking about Melba Patillo, who ultimately married a white man. Loving made that possible for her to marry a white man. I just want you all to hear this anecdote about what happened to her. This gets out. You don't hear about this. I didn't know that she married a white man. And they tell you about the Little Rock integration crisis. Professor McGuire, did you say something? No, I I said I didn't know that she married a white man. Oh, yes. Yes, she did. Uh, I checked that one online. Um, I actually knew that before I read the book, but I did verify. This is on page uh, 111 uh, from the chapter four. There's open season on Negroes now. Uh, The seventh grade teacher at Dunbar High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, dismissed her students early on May 17, 1954. News of the historic Supreme Court decision striking down segregation in public schools had just hit the airwaves and she feared a violent white response. As students streamed out of the all-black school, she urged them to pay attention to where you're walking. Walk in groups. Don't walk alone. Hurry, she added. Melba Patillo, a 12-year-old African-American student at Dunbar, wondered what all the fuss was about. Still, Melba was happy to have the the afternoon free. She gathered her books and started on the route she had taken home for nearly six years. According to her autobiography, published several decades later, she meandered through a grassy stretch of blooming persimmon trees and daydreamed about becoming a movie star and moving to New York or California. The sound of rustling leaves 
snapped her back to reality. She stopped and listened carefully, straining to see through the thick flora. Suddenly, a deep voice sliced through the brush. You want a ride, girl? She could not see anyone. Then it came again. Want a ride? Who is it? She asked nervously. I got candy in the car. A man's gravelly voice sang out. Lots of candy. Patillo inched forward and saw a burly white man coming towards her. She turned and fled in the opposite direction, screaming for help and running as fast as her black and white saddle shoes could carry her. You better come back and take a ride home, he growled. You hear me, girl? He was a huge man, Patillo recalled later, built like a wrestler. He chased Patillo through the wooded path, screaming about niggers wanting to go to school with his children and how he wasn't going to stand for it. Suddenly, Patillo tripped on her shoelaces and fell. As she struggled to stand, he grabbed her shoulders, thrust her to the ground, and flipped her over on her back. He slapped me hard across the face, she said in her memoir, then pinned her down and began fumbling with his belt buckle. I'll show you niggers the Supreme Court can't run my life, he said, as he reached under Patillo's dress and ripped off her underwear. In her account, she scrambled out from underneath him and started to run. Melba Patillo arrived home, shaken and disheveled. She told her grandmother that a white man attempted to rape her. Patillo's grandmother, who loved to garden and read Shakespeare and Langston Hughes, listened and then quietly shuttled Melba to the bathroom and started a bath. You soak a while, child. When the water goes down the drain, it will take all the white man's evil with it. Melba sat in the tub for what seemed like hours, listening to the muffled voices of her parents and grandmother arguing about whether they should call the police. When she finally emerged, her family encouraged her not to feel ashamed about the attack. Her father, Howell Patillo, an enormous man who worked as a hostler's assistant on the Missouri Pacific Railroad, reached for Melba and pulled her close. We ain't going to call the law, he said. The white police are liable to do something worse to her than what already happened. Survival sometimes required that silence surround sexual violence especially in an environment poisoned by the fierce backlash to Brown. Eventually, Melba would tell her story on the struggle in Little Rock for students across the country. But silence was not the only choice. Between 1959, excuse me, between 1956 and 1959, sex and sexual violence sat at the center of the freedom struggle and African Americans deployed different strategies to carry the movement through a crucial and difficult transition, including testimony, armed self-defense, and international pressure. Uh, this is chapter four 
And again, Melba Patillo, what you just heard, this incident, married a white person. think I'm correct on that. You all can verify uh, with reports. Uh, and I would also point out with that loving decision, uh, I, I don't see anything constructive about it. I don't see how it works against racism. Absolutely nothing. I'm not a black female, but any black female out there, you can report if you think that is working against racism and making things better for you, if you can marry a white person. But I do think it's important to make sure well, people keep it. Hang, hang on one second. Hang on one second. Okay. Hang on one second. Just for that loving case, I think it's very important because people have heard a lot of anecdotes during this program where the rape victim, black female, has been a teenager, very young, and the assailant has been significantly older, loving the black female in that case. She was 11 when she met the white man she ultimately married. He was 17. So I, just, I think that is incredibly important to keep that in mind. This couple met. She was 11. He's 17. That would be a high school senior and a sixth grader. Now, if you think a white male high school senior being with a black female sixth grader under any circumstances, much less 1960s in this area of the world, anyone who thinks that's okay, that's the foundation for a great relationship, no worries. I do not. I don't think there's anything constructive about it. And, uh, yeah, I have major concerns. Professor McGuire, you were going to say something? Um, well, in the loving case, you know, that's when they met. That's not when they started dating, okay? So I don't want to take it out of context. Um, but I was going to say, I mean, uh, you know, do you, think it's, do you think that it furthers the cause of white supremacy for the federal government to ban a whole group of people that you are not allowed to marry or to say that this group of people, African Americans in particular, cannot marry anyone outside of their race? I do not see anything constructive again, about white people making a decision while white supremacy still exists. Very important because we have agreement on that. I don't see anything constructive where white people are making it seem, hey, we're working against racism. We're going to make it easier. We're going to encourage anything that will promote sexual activity between white people, non-white people, while white supremacy continues to exist. I don't see anything constructive about that. I don't see how that helps black people at all. I don't, think, I don't see how that is an aid to black females. In my opinion, it further refines the system. You have people thinking, oh, see, life is great. Now we can get married. All this stuff is going by the wayside. Meanwhile, you have black females being sexually abused, molested, ongoing still continuing, and people don't even know about all that. People are just root, yay, the loving case happening, yay, we've made so much progress, and we're moving forward. We're post-racial. President Obama has a white parent, and we're moving forward. And in my opinion, nothing could be further from the truth. Even when you begin to evaluate these individual relationships, Renithia Tate, she has a great book. When you begin to evaluate these individual relationships, I think in the book you say that the personal is political. When you look at these relationships, the racism, white supremacy is there. There's never a time when it's not there. And these relationships, I think, are just another tragic example. Racism, white supremacy continuing. Maybe it looks nice. Maybe the white people bring you some food sometimes. Uh, these I have seen couples. Julian Bond, you have a lot of people in your book. Nell Irvin, Paint, Nell Irvin Painter, she's been a guest on this program. She's married to a white man. Julian Bond, I studied under him at the University of Virginia. He's married to a white person. I know tons of these people. Every single time 
in these relationships, I see the white supremacy at work. I see how it compromises the non-white person, and I have not seen in any way, shape, or form how these marriages and or sexual relationships benefit black people, work to end racism. Nothing about it. And like, I mean, just the fact that this is at the end of the book, this is at the conclusion of your book that, you know, this loving case is something working against racism, that is a great concern to me. In fact, like I said, anytime I hear a white person taking that position, I'm very suspicious this white person practicing racism, and I suspect it could be a conscious act, uh, pushing that loving case or anything that suggests, promotes sexual intercourse between white people. And given the context, what else can I say, given the context? I don't even celebrate it as a, as a thing that is supposed to end racism. I just say that the loving case, you know, pushed down a pillar of, uh, of slavery, and that's just a statement of fact. It's not, I don't make any assumptions about what it does or does not do for relationships or for, um, you know, people moving forward. I don't say that it helps to end racism. I just say that it ended a system that was put in place in slavery, and that was the ban on interracial marriage, and that's all I say about it. I mean, you said destroy the racial and sexual argument for segregation and white supremacy. Uh, you're using pretty, in my opinion, pretty strong language uh, in the paragraph that it, I read it from. It does destroy the argument for it. It doesn't mean it destroys the system of it, but it destroys the argument for it. Destroys the le- these but the, legacies? But the, argument, but the argument for white supremacy or racism has been destroyed many times. It doesn't mean that that system no longer exists. I mean, we could destroy the argument very simply. I mean, it's just not true. Right? The argument for white supremacy is just not true. There's no factual basis for white skin superiority, right? There's no factual basis for it whatsoever. I mean, there's no argument that can be made that is factual that can support white supremacy. So, but that doesn't mean that white supremacy no longer exists. I'm, I'm in total agreement there. What, I'm simply asserting that, in my opinion, I think for the typical, particularly, I'm really just talking about non-white readers who read this book. You've read 200 pages, as I said, this uh, this chapter, and you talking about the loving case is close to your end of your book. So I mean, we're getting ready for the conclusion to get this. Uh, it's crescendoing. We're working against racism. We just had the Joan Little case where she fought back. We've made all this progress, destroyed the legacies of slavery, destroying the arguments for slavery. It really, I think, for a confused non-white person to read this, it would be like, yeah, this is something that we're going in the right direction. We're working against white supremacy. This is dealing a, a death knell to white supremacy or at least moving close. And as I said, I just I, I don't agree at all. I, know, I don't suspect that we'll agree there, and that's fine. But I just I could not uh, disagree more. I think it's, uh, it's from what I have observed, it's awful. Every time a non-white person and a white person are engaged in a sexual relationship, it is terrible uh, for the non-white person I'm talking about. Uh, it totally confuses them about racism, white supremacy. It has a detrimental impact on other non-white people who observe these relationships. And uh, we have a lot of evidence. Uh, Nell, as I said, Nell Urban Painter, she did a review uh, for your book. She's been on this program. She talked about her book, History of White People, and she's married to a white person. Uh, it's in the you can in my opinion, what I'm saying is evidenced in that interview. Um, we've had a ton of those. Julian Bond, as I said, I've talked to him many times. I studied under him. He's married a white person. You reference him in your book. I see it operating in that relationship. Even in fact, Rosa Parks has two white grandparents. Correct. 
No, she does not have white grandparents. She has uh, racially mixed grandparents. She has great grandparents that uh, are white. Great grandfather that's white. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does she? Have, I think she has more than one. Does she have more than one great grandparent that's white? I'm not exactly sure. It's I not, think it's that might unlikely. be. It's possible. Okay. okay. Even if she has one, that's still, in my opinion, um, it ends up enforcing racism, white supremacy. Rosa Parks, you talk about uh, Claudette Colvin. They didn't pick her. There were a lot of black females who did not want to, who went on the buses and protested the abuse and mistreatment, who were arrested, and the NAACP and other black people, they didn't want to pursue those cases uh, because they were not the right type. Rosa Parks, they, they felt they weren't respectable enough. Right, they weren't respectable right. Enough. And that, and you know, that has to do with uh, that has to do with lots of different things. But certainly, you know. certainly, I'm just asserting that the fact that Rosa Parks has a white grandparent or great grandparent, I think that's one of the things. Because when you look at the photographs, Rosa Parks being significantly lighter than a lot of sure. the other black people that. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm just I'm just saying that, you know, even within the black community there was this idea that lighter skin was better. Sure, sure. This this, this uh you know, an um internalized white supremacy. I, I totally agree. That and that is to be expected, uh, under the system. Totally I'm just saying that it's there and I think uh, that promoting the sexual intercourse is just another part of that. Uh, you'll be better if you, you'll, you'll have children that are lighter complexion. I mean, it's, it's a whole bag that goes with the, the sexual intercourse thing. I mean, it goes back to the quote at the beginning of the book, and I would just assert for anyone, uh, you don't have to agree with me. I know this is a very controversial uh, topic. I would assert it's not correct. It's not going to help us solve this problem. And context. Uh, I'm not just making this statement uh, you know, to say, you know, hate white people or what have you, look at the context. The context of when we meet in the bedroom, it tends to fall into the category of, you know, the type of anecdotes that you talk about in this book. Uh, that's what I've seen. And I even when I'll it just say that I, I, have, I have many friends who are in interracial relationships, and they're very mm-hmm. healthy, and they're surrounded by people who love them on both sides of the color line, and they have beautiful children who are loved and cherished and uh, respected and dignified, and um, I guess I haven't had the same experience that you've had. Mm-hmm. With, you know, with I would troubled troubled relationships. I would love to chat with some of these folks uh, to see for myself, but uh, I will double check with Pam. She called in. I see a hand up. Pam, did you have a question for, for uh, Professor McGuire? Your line should be open, Pam. Uh, Pam, did you have a question? Oh, okay, we can hear you. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. It's like as soon as you clicked over, my one of my phones died. <laughs> I, I don't think it wanted me to ask a question. Um, good evening to your guests. Uh, good evening, Gus and Justice. Uh, I just had a question quickly about uh, what you guys were just talking about as far as the, um, the interracial, you know, sex between uh, sexual intercourse between black people and white people within a sexual, within that white supremacy system. The question I have is, um, to your knowledge, uh, the white people that you know uh, that are in, involved with these black people, do they actually tell these black people what white people say 
when no black people are in the room, do they have those kind of conversations, to your knowledge, where they uh, reveal what, uh, how white people practice racism? Yes. So they actually tell the black people that they're involved with their black ch- their their children with these black people. They tell them they sit down with their children and tell them what white people say about black people. No, I don't think they sit down with their children and tell them that. I don't think that would be responsible parenting. I mean, it depends on the age of the child, of course. Um, but uh, you know, they have conversations about the kinds of crazy things people say. I mean, I think if you're in any kind of interracial conversation, you have a real a relationship with somebody across the color line, then these are the kinds of things you talk about. Well, um, you know, I, in my experience in any case, uh, what I find is just the opposite. I have uh, uh, several mixed ma- so-called uh, marriages uh, between black people and white people in my family, and the white people, generally speaking, it's either one or two things. They either don't want to talk about race at all, you know, they'll say, uh, they'll they'll call racism just some ignorant people, they're stupid. They won't talk in depth about racism. They don't talk to their children even when they become older, teenagers or adults. They don't talk to them about what white people say when no black people are in the room. And what I found is the white people that do talk about racism talk about it in a very limited way. Mm-hmm. So um, I was just curious about that. Uh, I mean, it could have something to do with the fact that most of the people I hang around with and who you know are engaged in these kinds of conversations are um, historians of race, <laughs> or you know who deal with this in terms of their um, passion and their careers. And so, you know, it's not unusual for people to have these kind of kinds of conversations and have them be deep conversations that really you know explore the roots of white supremacy and the dynamics and the ways in which they're at work uh, today. So, I mean, but that like again, I mean, that could just be because I'm um, moving in circles where it's part of you know, the conversation. Um, it's part of, you know, what we study and um, work to uh, eradicate. So, I, you know, if, if we're talking about, like, you know, everyday relationships, I'm not sure. I mean, I, my cousin who is, um, uh, you know, uh, in rural Wisconsin um, is married to an African-American woman, and I, I would have a hard time believing that they have serious, intimate conversations about race and racism. I, I'm not sure my cousin's capable of that. On the other hand, you know, he's married um, uh, to a black woman, and and they have children, and they make a life together, and they've been married for many years, and they seem very happy. And, um, you know, I mean, I I can't know what their I can't know what their intimate life is like, or the kinds of conversations they have. But, but you know, he's not exactly um, the kind of person that would go very deep into anything, and I'm not sure he would have a very deep historical knowledge of white supremacy or this history, so he might not be capable of having those conversations. But but the people who I'm friends with, because this is what they do for a living, you know, they do. So, look, I, I'm, not, I'm not claiming to be an expert on interracial relationships uh, or or anything like that. I just, you know, I just I just put in my two cents based on what Gus was saying. That's all. Well, I think you, I think you, um, I think your book is very informative. The only thing I would say about the interracial thing is, uh, I believe that even white people who don't have a uh, deep historical knowledge, they know how white supremacy functions because they're white and because right. they see what white people say and do uh, when no black people are around. So white people are very wary, very well informed, regardless of education. Uh, and I would say that, in my opinion, if you are involved with a white person and they don't tell you, uh, reveal to you how white people are practicing racism, and all white people know how white people are practicing racism, and right. you're in a relationship with that person. 
then I don't see how that person can say they love you. Uh, I agree. The other thing, yeah, you know, it's like you're, you're watching a child stick a fork into an electrical outlet and you don't say right. anything. When right. you raise children and you don't talk about racism, knowing that they're going to be devastated by it and you're the white, white parent of a black child, I don't see how you can claim you love that child. I think that's just one of many reasons that uh, interracial sex between black people and white people should never happen within a system of white supremacy. And even those people that you uh, mentioned, like, for example, the, the academics and the intellectuals, I have them also in my family. Mm-hmm. And still, still they practice racism. They still believe in white supremacy despite all the highfalutin talk. And I had one female relative say to me, they let me know that, they're, uh, that even though people appear to be happy, the non-white person, the black person, is still being traumatized and still being victimized because this female relative who was married to a white male said, you know, we were in the room, you know, we were, the other people were in the room, we were in the kitchen together, and out of the nowhere, she said, in a very low voice, they don't believe in equality. And I was wondering who the they were. I wasn't going to ask her because I knew she wasn't capable of having a, a real conversation about racism when she laid in the bed with a white man every night. I knew that wasn't going to happen. So I didn't say anything. But I remember thinking, who was the they? And the only other they was her husband. And just right. like that lady that called in that show, uh, Dr. Laura, you know, she claimed, oh, we had you know, three, right. three happy years of marriage. But then when you really look at it, you know, how happy could she have been where she felt driven to call another racist white person, Dr. Laura, and put herself in that situation of asking her, you know, telling her how her husband was. And I hear these stories over and over again from black males, black females, when they really are honest. They realize that they're being victimized by white supremacy within their own relationship. So I would, I mean, we can just disagree, but I think uh, sex between black people and white people should never happen within a system of white supremacy. But I do appreciate uh, you um, answering the question. I did have one more question for you. What sure. is the reaction of white people to your book? Um, you know, the kinds of white people who are going to read this book are going to be sort of members of the choir anyway. Um, Generally speaking, I think so. I tend to get like a lot of leftists and liberals and um, anti-racists uh, who are fond of the book and are grateful for it. Um, I haven't talked to a lot of white men about it, you know. Um, I have, you know, I've, I've gotten some hate mail, and it's from white people. Um, the, the the real negative stuff that I've gotten is from white people and not from black people. I'm just curious. Thank you for answering my question. I'll just listen now. You're welcome. Thanks for calling. Um, let's see. The person who called in, 1760, we got like four minutes, 1760. If you got a question, a uh, quick question uh, for our guest, uh, Professor McGuire, your line should be open. Last four digits, 1760. Greetings. Can I be heard? Yes. Look. Gus, is that okay? Uh, yes, ma'am. We can hear you. Okay, greetings to you, Pam, and as well as the other cows listener on the line. Miss um, McGuire, is that your name correct? Correct. Uh, how, um, if I may ask you a question, is it okay? Sure. Have you ever been involved in a sexual relationship with a non-white black male? Why is this an important question to ask? In the context of the discussion that we were having as long as with the line of the book, I just wanted to know if you have ever been in a relationship with a non-white person. I have been in many relationships with many different people, and uh, 
I can't see how my personal sexual history has any relationship to my professional work as a historian. Well, it does in a way because when we tend to put a part of ourselves into everything that we do, it might not be intentional, but when we do work, we come from experiences that we've had and it tends to creep into our work. And that is the reason why I asked you the question, if you've ever been involved in a relationship of a sexual nature with a person that was um, non-white. I just don't think I need to answer questions about my sexual history, so I'm not going to do that. Okay, Gus, you could move on to the next caller and get someone else online if they have a question that they might want to ask. Okay, grooving. Two minutes left, two minutes left. If you have a question, hand up quickly. I will. I want to make sure I get in as well. I thought it was uh, hilarious and relevant uh, to the discussion. I was reading uh, the acknowledgments uh, at the end of your book, and uh, I think I had read it, and I just had the page open. Um, I, it just didn't. I didn't catch it, I guess, the first time through when I was reading it, but uh, you said that uh, your classmates rescued you from loneliness of archival research and provided inspiration, friendship, and dark chocolate when necessary. I just thought that was hilarious and relevant to the uh, discussion, Dr. Uh, Dr. Welsing moment for sure. Um, if you have a question. It was the candy, okay? <laughs> I, I assumed it was. I assumed it was. I just thought that that was uh, it was funny. Right. Um, I appreciate the humor. For sure, for sure. Uh, Ninety. It's star eight on the talk shoe line and star six on the free HD line. I'll make sure I get in the uh, address, the website uh, for Professor McGuire's book. And she actually has the letter that she was talking about, where uh, Rosa Parks is talking about the rape that happened to her. I think there is some speculation if she's talking about what happened to her or maybe an incident that happened to someone else, but you have a blog post uh, on your website about that article. I actually read more information online about you uh, discussing that. Uh, the website is at thedarkendofthestreet.com, at thedarkendofthestreet.com. Uh, Cree, did you have a question for uh, Professor McGuire? I'm not sure if uh, hello. We can hear you. Oh, okay. Somehow I missed uh, you saying my my handle. Uh, actually, I plan to read your book, Professor McGuire, and I don't know if this question has been asked already. Uh, and that is whether or not any kind of sexual relationship under the present circumstances of white domination would be would meet your definition of rape well i think you know rape is a pretty um technical legal term you know you, there are various levels to sexual assault and harassment uh and rape and so uh, you know my definition of rape would be the legal definition of rape hmm. thank you Good hearing from Cree, as always. All of our callers, Cree, Pam, 404. Um, that is the two-hour mark. Um, the book, again, at the dark end of the street, Black Women, Rape and Resistance, A New History of the Civil Rights Movement from Rosa Parks to the Rise of Black Power. 
Um, very informative. Um, regardless of where you come down on sex with white people, I think this book will give you a lot of context uh, for that discussion. I would definitely recommend, especially black people, you should read this book. I think you'll have a whole new appreciation for Rosa Parks and many black people. There's so many uh, anecdotes uh, that are horrible. We've read a lot of those, but there are also a ton of anecdotes of black people standing up fighting back against racist man and racist woman. Uh, there were there are many moments in the book where I felt like, wow, black people are superheroes on <laughs> the things that they were doing under, I mean, just terrible circumstances and just refusing to bow to racism. Uh, Professor McGuire, thoroughly enjoyed reading the book and having you on the program. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your uh, Tuesday evening with us. You're welcome. Have a good night. Will do. Context of white supremacy we will take a quick commercial break if anyone has anything they want to share we will do it on the other side of the break and i think we actually have a news report from justice so hang tight context of white supremacy i'm actually gonna i'm gonna play the uh black like me clip again just because i think that uh i mean that that is everything we talked about so it'll be black like me then we'll do the commercial and then we'll come back and hear from justice and the rest of the folks context of white supremacy Well, I sure appreciate your stopping. Any luck getting rides through here? No, not much. Say, that's a pretty bird. Yeah, surprised my wife. And the five dimes says he's a guaranteed warbler, your money bag. <laughs> you from around these parts? No, Texas. And you ought to know enough to say, sir. Yes, sir. We got two parakeets and a minor bird at home. Regular birdhouse. <laughs> yes, I got me quite a family. All these birds, three dogs. Don't know how many cats. Our kids are all grown up. I got five grandchildren. You married? Yes, sir. Any kids? Yes, sir. Boy, five. Got a pretty wife? Yes, sir. I think so. She ever had it from a white man? Nigger women know they can't get jobs unless they put out to their bosses. I've hired lots of them to pick crops, work in the house. I guarantee you I've had every one of them before they ever got their pay. You must have lots of colored children. <laughs> God knows. <laughs> Do you ever consider the woman? The nigger woman? One thing about them. Down here, there were the cops who say anything about it. They know better. It gets pretty bad. Do you? Yes, I do. Why, we all do it around here. We figure you're doing your race a favor. Put a little white blood in it. Where'd you say you was from? Texas. You come down here to stir up trouble, did you? No, 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 sir. You know what we do to troublemakers here? No. We kill a nigger and toss him one of these swamps, and nobody ever know anything about it. This is where you get off. I'll tell you how it is down here. We'll do business with you and your women. Other than that, as far as we're concerned, you're completely off the record. 
RacismDaily.com, your number one source for global news reports on race, racism, and overt actions of white supremacy. From Asia to the Americas to Europe to Australia to Africa, racism is not a thing of the past. It is our current reality. Be informed. Be globally informed. You should be the first to know. RacismDaily.com, RacismDaily.com, RacismDaily.com. Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? Counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. Do you need a one-stop shop for all of your multimedia needs? Triumphant Multimedia is a skilled team of professionals with a passion for great marketing and chic design. Our specialties include consulting, brand development, copywriting, and creative graphic design that's second to none. We also offer photography, photo retouching, videography, and video editing. At Triumphant Multimedia, our goal is to provide highly effective creative solutions built to suit any individual need or budget. Give us a call at 678-732-8067 or check us out online at trimultimedia.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome. This is Justice with the Cows Radio Program. If you want to learn about, understand, and counter racism, white supremacy, be sure not to miss a Cows episode. We keep them jammed, packed with constructive information to sharpen your use of words to help eliminate the system of racism, white supremacy, ASAP. Also, for more information on racism, white supremacy, and to invest in my counter-racist efforts, please visit my blog. Just do justice today. Blogspot.com. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. 
Yo, this is way one half of the black twins. I want y'all to check something out. I lay this project, double consciousness, the mixed message. This will be dropping October 2nd, 2011, featuring various audio from Umar Abdullah Johnson and Dr. Kambom, just to name a few. You can download this at www.gagmusicroom.bandcamp.com and at St. Louis Mixtapes.com. That's STL Mixtapes.com. Replace white supremacy with justice now. This mixtape is only for victims of racism and white supremacy. Funny. Uh, now I'm going to snicker every time I hear uh, Superman. Um, private jokes, private jokes. All right, in context of white supremacy, um, the book, ah, man, I, uh, I hope that black people who listen to this program will read this book because I think the book, regardless of what, you know, me, anyone else has to say, I think her book gives you more reason to stay out of bed with white people than anything I could say, Mr. Fuller, Dr. Welsing, just read her book. That'll, that will make it real clean why you want to stay out of bed with white people at all costs, no matter what they say, no matter what trinkets they bring you, no matter how bad things are, no matter how, you know, whatever. Do not get in bed, no sex with white people, not today, not tomorrow, not ever. Just read her book. Make it real clean. Um, but I did want to say I really I stick to my guns on this. Uh, I would prefer to see black people go to the library to get this book. You don't want to be giving white people uh, money, even if they have constructive information. There have been quite a few guests on the program, white people who have had books that I think are constructive. Uh, Dr. Joe Fagan, Two-Faced Racism, quite a few of them. Do not purchase these books. Go to the library. Um, yeah. <laughs> She bought me my copy of the book, but uh, go to the library. They should have this book at university libraries. It came out. It was published in 2010, so it, should be, it shouldn't be that difficult to find. You shouldn't have to uh, feel like if you don't purchase this book, you won't be able to get it. If you absolutely got to own it, uh, get a used copy. Um, do your best to not you know, give these white people uh, any money. You should be able to find a used copy online. Um, halfpricebooks.com, uh, I think Amazon.com. There are a lot of different ways that you can uh, get constructive, particularly reading material, books. There are a lot of ways that you can get that without having to give racist man and racist woman uh, all of your coins. So very constructive book, a lot of good information, but we still don't want to be giving white people money. Uh, you can buy the code book, buy a word guide, uh, buy Trojan Horse. Uh, there are a lot of black people who have constructive material. Renethia Tate, pieces of a puzzle. Uh, Renethia Tate, the one thing black females will not talk about. Renethia Tate, pieces of a puzzle. Another great book on this subject matter. Do not purchase uh, the books and materials of white people, even if they claim to be against racism. And it does. And this book does have constructive information, but you still – we're at war with these white people all areas of people activity that should be a part of economics. We're not giving them our coins best that we can help it. That said, um, I will check with justice first. If she has, if she has a news report and then, uh, I'll check. I see some hands, uh, folks, if they have comments, anything they want to share on, uh, professor McGuire and her, we can do that as well. Uh, justice, if you have a news report that you would like to share, uh, your line should be open. Um, I do have, well, it's not, well, it's, uh, I'm going to read the email that uh, Mr. Nero sent me. So, um, 
Yeah, so it says, uh, you are very welcome, Justice. I, I have been catching up on my reading. I was almost done with my work by Calvin Thomas. When that book, along with other items, was stolen from my cab by a suspected racist. I was at the last chapter. I was also reading $40 million slaves and had read more than half of it. Both books were in my backpack when a suspected racist stole it from my cab. Uh, I have finished reading this pink, the uh, pink swastika. I got a ticket for paying for parking in a red zone not, not long ago. Caesar, white people, demanded that I pay $107.50 for parking next to a curb that was painted red. Never mind the fact that I was picking up a legally blind, non-white female. I'm sure I will call in soon. Uh, I despise the quality of talk show. Not thrilled about the format either. Then again, I wasn't all that crazy about Block Talk Radio also. Take care and continue to fight as best as you can. Uh, I will continue to, to do the same. Hotep, Mr. Nero. Um, and then I reply and then... Uh, says, uh, thank you, Justice. I should have known better to park there for any length of time. The suspected racist that stole my books has unfortunately gotten away with it. A learning uh, experience. I will be more careful next time. The first thing that sus that suspected racist said to me when he got in the cab was, hey, brother. I knew then to watch him, but had completely forgotten that I had left my backpack sitting in the back seat. That won't happen again. As for Caesar's rules, we must co comply with them as best we can. I now have 107 reasons to never park next to a curb painted red. Uh, next to a curb painted uh, red again. Take excellent care and continue to do the best you can under this lousy unjust system. I'm listening to the archives and look forward to the day when this system no longer exists. Mr. Nero. Then I reply and then it goes on. And uh I uh yeah. Right on. Folks who uh might have missed out Mr. Nero, longtime caller, investor, uh, I know folks that uh missed his voice. He actually uh he called in <laughs> pretty recently. He was on uh, more than one program. Uh, I think Doctor, the program with Dr. Valentine, he's on that one. Um, I think the program with Prince Justice, he's on that one. So uh, he has he has resurfaced. Uh, good to know he's still uh, doing, I guess, as best he can under white supremacy. And, uh, yeah, that I mean, trifling, trying to assist a blind, non-white person. And the racist took his car, books, backpack, I mean – Any uh, other thoughts on uh, your report from Mr. Nero, Justice? I'm sorry. Sorry, I, you, I had to do some. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on your report from Mr. Nero? Um, I just have to say that, hey, um, I think uh, non-white people, well, I well, that white people, um, well, if the system of racism and white supremacy is here, white people, uh, they will not get in trouble for, I don't, like, 
white people will, will not get in trouble for it. Well, I don't want it just depends what it is, but I don't think white people can uh, get in trouble for anything unless they, um, you know, like it won't be, like like it won't be uh, too violent. Like, you know, if they put them in jail for about like a week, I mean, get real. I mean, that's really nothing. And, or like if, uh, if they uh, say you're going to have to go sign this paperwork and then go to court. I mean, you know. Uh, white people do uh, uh, way more uh, violent things to non-white people than white people. So, you know. Oh, yeah, and then I do have to say that um, the white person did not get in trouble uh, for... Actually, I think I think I read that in Mr. Nero's uh, email, but... Um, uh, the white pe the uh, white person did not get in trouble for uh, those uh, stolen books and his backpack and yeah just everything else. And white people are the problem, twenty four seven. Agreed. Agreed. The problem. White people. Wow. Uh, unless you have anything else, I was going to check the folks who dialed in. Anything else you wanted to share, Justice? Um, I don't think so. Mm -mm. Sure? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Okie dokie. Um... Sure, well, Mr. Nero. Well, unless this, well, if we're gonna be like, are you gonna meet my line or? Because I might still gonna say something. No, ma'am. Okay. All right. The folks who dialed in, I don't, uh, I'm not really sure if, uh, yeah, I'll just get the folks who dialed in who had hands. So that would be uh, Ron, B7, Pam. Uh, the person, or oh, uh, 404, sorry, 404 and Cree. I'm going to get your lines. The other folks, if you're interested in talking, you should press. If you're on TalkShoe, it's star 8. If you're on the free HD line, it's star 6. Um, before I do, though, I did want to get in because people gave feedback. No, I agree totally with Mr. Nero. I hate TalkShoe. I said that before. And I'm glad people have shared because it seems that a lot of people are struggling with TalkShoe. And I don't, I don't mean figuring out how to use the page just being able to get the page to load. Um, and I think 4.4, she said yesterday that it was different audio. Um, in my opinion, it seems that there is an extraordinary amount of interference, uh, us attempting to broadcast from TalkShoe. I would say much more than what we experienced at Blog Talk Radio. And I'm glad people have shared um, because I think as victims frequently, we end up being in situations experiencing racism and thinking that we're the only ones, not knowing that other people are having the same problems, same trifling racist uh, abuse that they're trying to deal with. So uh, I would just encourage folks, share, 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 share. Uh, in any context, it's good. Um, I think if, if you're encountering racism on the job, share. You want to let, that, let people know. Uh, you want to share with your children. Uh, do not let them be ignorant about racism. Share as much as you can. And in this situation, just me knowing that 
a lot of the listeners. I mean, it's almost a daily thing now. Uh, we get an email uh, from someone saying that, you know, they're having problems trying to listen, having problems trying to, to call in. The page is not loading. Uh, it's just it's a daily occurrence. So I'm glad to know. Hopefully we will be able to leave talk to you immediately. I, too, agree with Mr. Nero. I didn't like both talk either, but uh, I really hate talk to you. This is uh, awful. But uh, thank you all for being persistent. Invest. That way we can leave quicker <laughs> from the talk to you uh, page. Invest. Definitely that helps. But uh, thank you. And continue to share just to let, because I think that's important, just to know that it seems there's a lot of, in my opinion, this is not just, you know, Oh, a computer glitch here, a computer glitch there. It seems like uh, a coordinated, codified effort uh, to make it very difficult to attempt counter-racist programming at TalkShoe. Uh, and in general, and in general, I think Creek could testify to that as well, the blog to a blog talk side. Uh, at any rate, um, yeah, I'll get to the phone lines. The person who dialed in, TalkShoe, it's uh, Ron B7. Your line should be open. I think, Pam, your line is open uh Cree and 404 your lines are open as well uh, i don't know if you all had comments or thoughts on the program well i guess i'll get ron b7 first sorry ladies since you all got questions and ron b did not get a question ron b did you have a question or a comment first well i just wanted to um say i didn't i didn't know if you were familiar with the case you were throwing out cases that that drove home the point why uh white people shouldn't have sex with uh white people and there's a there's a real interesting case right down here that happened a few years back. You probably could do a whole show on this case, and it's the Brian Nichols case. If oh yeah! Case, <laughs> man, I shouldn't be laughing at that. That, 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 that. That's a deep, deep case. If you study from its roots and, and even how it concluded, just you know what I mean. I mean, it hasn't concluded yet because he hasn't. Went from, we haven't even heard anything about it. It's almost like it's gone silent, you know. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting case right there. I totally agree. I man, yes, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I used to live in Atlanta. I think I've mentioned that before. I used to live in Atlanta, and I had left Atlanta. Um, by the time that happened, I think 2005, right? The shoot, well, the shooting part of it of the guy, man, the shooting part of it happened in 05, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I had already left uh, Atlanta by the time uh, I think his name became well-known with the shooting part of it. But, um, man, yes, you hit the nail on the head. That is, uh, man, all aspects of it, the beginning, the shooting. The, I mean, I remember a magazine where they had the white woman who they said was inter instru instrumental in him being caught. And they had a huge photograph of her on the magazine. Said, oh, the hero. And she she was so brave and dealing with this savage Brian Nichols. Like, uh, white people work hard. Yes, excellent case, sir. I'll be quiet if you have anything else or the other folks whose lines are open. Uh, you all should feel free. But that is a fantastic word. Let me use the correct words. It is a really tragic illustration of what we've been discussing, racism, white supremacy in general, Brian Nichols, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm muting my line. Gus, you told me to remind you about the program that I sent to you on last night to make a commentary on it when I called in the next time. The podcast. Yes, thank you. I'm pulling up my uh, 
mail right now. Thank you for the reminder. I've got so much help from uh, black females over the last, uh, I guess, really since the program has been on, but definitely in the last uh, 20 hours. Um, okay, I'm pulling up my email. Okay, when listening to the show, always put your cursor, mouse pointer in the comment message box on the bottom of the page after you hit the play button or the page will reset itself after about three minutes of play. This is for people who are on TalkShoe. There's a little, uh, it says submit chat messages. If you put your cursor in that box, apparently it will keep your page from reloading. So if you're listening at TalkShoe, I guess if you call in or if you just stream on your computer, when listening to the show, always put your cursor, mouse pointer in the comment message box on the bottom of the page after you hit the play button or the page will reset itself after about three minutes of play. So thank you for that reminder, because I didn't know that. Um, thank you for the reminder. I hope people listen. I'll say that again for the people that talk to you so you all can remember to do that. Thank you, 404. Oh, you're welcome. Is Justice, you're still on the line? Yes. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Oh, I thought you were being victimized like the rest of us. <laughs> well, I am, but. <laughs> How is Mr. Nero? Um, have you, is he doing well, very well? Because I know he keeps up with you and sends you email. Yeah, he is. Okay. Well, he's also still victimized. Okay, well, hopefully he's <laughs> listening wherever he's working and hearing the show tonight. And Pam, it's nice to hear you too. Oh, it's good to hear from you. I figured I knew she was going to get defensive when I asked her about that sex apart <laughs> question. <laughs> you know what? As soon as I heard you on there, I said, "Oh, she's going to get that butt." Excuse my expression, but I knew you were going. I knew you were going to lay something on her that was going to be direct. I knew so, she was going to get defensive about it. You know, you're writing a book. We all do. If, you, if you're an author, as you know, Pam, you're an author and you write books, a part of you tend to go into everything that you publish. Unwittingly, you put a part of yourself into it. So you cannot say that you did not, um, that you were not going to answer. You're being very um, dishonest. All you have to say is yes or no. You know, we're not going to drag you over the coals <laughs> if you said, yes, I had relationships with a non-white, which I suspect that she did. Because for someone so heavily involved and so in-depth with the book, I suspected all along that she was involved in sexual relationships and probably is at this moment in a relationship with a non-white person. I'm sure she's... She's I, married to a white man. Seen. Oh, she's married to a white man? Okay. Mm -hmm. She has photographs online. Or I'll take that back. He looks like a white person to me. I could be wrong, but I've seen photographs. He looks like a white person. And that's probably why you don't want well, to say like because you're married to a white person now and you don't want to let your husband to hear on the radio that you had a relationship with someone non-white. That could be a very a deal breaker. Yeah, saying it publicly especially. I wasn't yeah. really surprised that she didn't want to answer that because I don't think she necessarily uh, agreed or totally knew our reasoning behind why we were asking. She probably just thought we would be a nosy. I assume she may have just thought we would be a nosy. But actually, it wasn't about being nosy. It was about really pretty much making that connection between racism and sexual intercourse between blacks and whites. 
And that's I think that's the connection that most of us are trying to make. We're not trying to get in her personal business. But I don't know that she understood that. She probably just thought we were prying. So, yeah, you know, no, no. answers. I because she, this, you, yeah. you want to make such a detailed analysis of what went on. And like um, Gus said, with what went on with the Loving case, which struck me too when I read that piece because I have my Black Enterprise book and they did a revision of I think it was the 30th or the 40th anniversary of the decision. It was written up in the book. And I remember reading it and I'm saying to myself, I said, here is this white male with this child at 11 years of age being involved with her. And I'm wondering where the parents are because I know with my father, he would have killed somebody did something stupid like that. And she didn't see anything wrong with that. And here is a grown man in high school, as Gus said, and he's in in fact um, messing around with somebody in middle school or elementary school. I just think they have a sexual obsession. I mean, it's the whole thing is, I mean, it's, it's really disgusting when you think about all of the demonization that's happened with black men being classified as rapists. And I really doubt during those days that very few black men were raping white women. I really doubt that that happened hardly at all because we, they were in a, lived in a state of constant terrorism. So I doubt that black men were running around raping white women. But it's just, it's sickening to me. That black men now, when you hear rapists, the, the image in white people's minds, and in some black people's minds, is a black man. But nobody has a worse record of rape than the white man all over the world. Goes to Thailand and rapes little children. Everywhere he goes. I mean, he's ra- raping, uh, they had some aid worker that was raping uh, boys in a South African, I mean, raping children in a South African orphanage. And it's just, um, it's just sickening to me how they've managed to, take all of their sins and crimes and faults and put them on black people. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's nobody more promiscuous overall collectively, in my opinion, than the white female. I mean, but the black woman somehow who is a victim of rape has a reputation for being promiscuous. That's quite true. You only have to look at the church itself and see what was done with the nuns and the priests, how they feel that by having sex with these non-white children, that it really was not um, a part of their vows. They were not breaking their vows because they looked at you as really not being human, so whatever they do to you really wasn't a big deal. So they went all over the globe in the non-white area and raped and did all kinds of atrocities to these um, children. You know, yeah, one thing I'd like to say to brothers, if I could just say this quickly, then I'll, then I'll, I'll you know, I'll stop talking about somebody else's face, is you know, there's such a thing as, I believe, in, in post-trauma. And when you look at the history of black women over the last 500 years, and black men as well, but I think women got the brunt of it. When you look at the history of black women, women and how we were consistently raped and, and, and sexually mistreated and tortured and degraded over 500 years, and we've passed that along from generation to generation, all I would say to brothers is, please, Get some, you know, uh, you know, we got to develop some empathy for each other. Because I remember when I was a young woman, a teenager, white men making comments, white men saying things, you know, this and that. So what I'm saying is black women have been greatly traumatized, and a lot of our personality dysfunctions and, and, and issues come from this trauma, sexual abuse as children, sexual degradation in the media, just, just over and over again, and, and this sexual post-traumatic stress that's being passed from one generation of black females to the other. So I would just say that we, we, know, we have to develop some empathy 
for our sisters, not just black men, but black women toward other black women. You know, we have to develop some empathy and, and stop uh, and stop some of this anti-black femaleness, this anti-blackness that we seem to uh, we, we've been pretty much programmed to have. We got to start having some empathy because there's a lot of pain and suffering going on, and I see it in black women every day. And I'm not saying that black men don't experience it, but I do think black women have gotten the brunt of sexual degradation and sexual abuse and sexual rape. I think black women have ha- have had the brunt of it more than anybody else on this planet. And so uh, when, when the media and the white man and the white woman degrade black women, black men, you got to stand up for us. you got to stand up for us. you got to protect your field. Here, here. Your crops are grown, you know? Here, here. Just, uh, that's all I wanted to just share. Hello, Cree. I forgot you were on the line. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually wanted to say hello to you, 404, and uh, and Pam and Justice. And I would just say here, here, it would mean so much if uh, more black males would make their voice heard when we are, um, when they do that pile on on us, you know, it would, have, it would mean so much. So, um, and I just think that this white woman... You know, you notice how she used, she, she has that typical demure voice, <laughs> and uh, I, I don't think that at all she didn't know why the question was being asked. This is a professor. She thinks about how ideas are connected all the time. White people do the math really fast, and uh, she knows that she knows that power. She knows that she knows that power really defines whether or not sex is consensual. You know, that, that's what's behind statutory rape. That's what's behind all of that type of rape. So she knows that. And so if, you know, she knew why, why she was being asked and that she knew that that would indict her as being a rapist as well. So then the question comes as to, you know, why, what was the motivation? I, I really want to read the book. I'm going to read the book. I'm sure it has amazing information in it. But then the question comes as to, you know, what's her, what's her deal? What's her angle? Why did she write it? And it, I think it just goes to reinforcing this idea that it's the white male. I hear that all the time. I particularly hear it from black males. That, you know, white, I actually heard a black male tell me that white females were like tofu, that they take on whatever flavor they're given by males, that they aren't really behind the malicious behavior that's behind white supremacy. So she looks like she's on black females' side. She's not a perpetrator. But she's, you know, what it sounds like to me, this is a great likelihood that she also indulges in that kind of uh, sadistic sex with people who have a lot less power than her. And uh, But we would never know it because white females are second only to white males in the amount of rapes they've c- committed throughout history. But, if, yeah, but it seems like she's on our side. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that passive-aggressive role that they normally play and that's how she was coming off, trying to come off. Oh, I'm so great. You know, she just came right out. Yes, I do believe such a system existed. And, you know, she was rolling along until when Gus stumped her when he asked her the question about the sex that he believed it was rape. And then all of a sudden the air started coming out of the tires. And when he started mentioning the loving case and he said that he disagreed, she just thought that she was going to come on to a fan club and everyone was going to be great and everything was going to be rolling along smoothly. Yeah. Because she 
know for herself that if you have an 11-year-old child and some high school person is wanting to have a relationship, even on a Facebook or even through email, you see it all the time in Dateline to catch a predator. These people getting picked up doing these stupid things. So you wouldn't even allow that to happen, but you're going to say that this was old for the past non-inheritance. This, this man was dirt poor, the loving person, whatever part of Virginia he was from. He didn't have any inheritance to pass on. No doubt. You know what she said, and I've actually heard a black female tell me the same thing. Just, oh, well, let's be clear. They met when she was 11. <laughs> They met when she was 11. You can't prove they had sex. Oh, let's, let's get real. And just the fact that she took that kind of defensive position, yeah, it'll never change. Because she became pregnant, I think she was in her teens when she had her first child. She was about 15 or 16 when she became pregnant. So they were having relationships at a very at a younger age. So you can't tell me that this person, he was not fooling around with this child. But if it, the script was flipped now, and, well, we wouldn't even go that way because we know it wouldn't even have happened. Wouldn't happen. She said she teaches uh, black history, right? She said that, yes, sir. Did, did, did she mention what particular period in the history of, of uh, I guess, black history that she teaches? I mean, I know she was kind of multi- uh, from uh, from the her blog again is at uh, at the end of the dark street dot com. Uh, excuse me, at the dark end of the street dot com. Sorry, at the dark end of the street dot com. What I read on her blog and her faculty page, her time period, I guess the focus seems to be the civil rights uh, movement, uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, that, that era. She did a thesis on uh, sexual violence. I guess that was kind of the precursor to the book. She did her thesis on sexual violence uh, against black females. It was mostly in that. Well, she was not being very honest tonight with her discussion because, and she said she has a brother that's involved in a relationship. He's married to a black female, and she has several friends, and she's maybe, oh, they have cute kids, and they get along great and everything. I think also as a black history teacher, she could, she could, uh, she could easily practice racism and white supremacy. Of course. And it's something about that. It's something about that time period that I notice a lot of white teachers and professors that teach about black history. They they like to stay in that uh, either that that around that post-slavery civil rights era. Um, I'm not sure why, but so they have a reason why. Hmm. Interesting observation. Val Louisa and uh, the Cheney Schwerner and Goodman case. Uh, if you read this book, that does end up taking up a significant chunk of the text um, in the book. Just little things I would point out uh, that are suspicious 
of a white person doing this, uh, that those incidents in a book that's supposed to be about white men raping black females, that those incidents end up taking a significant chunk of time. Yeah, that's true. Because I remember the case with a lady that was raped, um, and I remember she went to the White House and the president, she, she, when she got the apology from the state of Alabama, and President Obama had her at the White House. She did go there. I think she's in her 80s now, the um, the older lady who was snatched from church on her way home from church. Reese Taylor? Yeah, Mrs. Yeah, Mrs. Taylor. not a love fest. This is, has nothing to do I see with it. What has love got to do with it? Absolutely nothing. You, know, you have to wonder how much of this trauma has been passed along from generation to generation. Uh, you know, uh, Miss Taylor had children. And, you know, I, I just believe that a lot of this trauma is just generational. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you just have to wonder what black women have been so, being so vulnerable then. I mean, just totally vulnerable, had no rights whatsoever. The black men couldn't protect her, and I'm sure a, quite a few died trying. But to grow up in that kind of climate and that, that generational stress and trauma just didn't pass along, and we're not being aware of it, you know. Uh, the damage is just, the damage is tremendous. And so I think, like what you said about the book, I think that's the best the best uh, reason, best, best example is why we should not be having sex with white people, books like that. Another thing, as I'm, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, like, what what could be her motivation behind this? And um, I'm thinking maybe, and then this is based on some assumptions. Maybe her attacker, the man who sexually assaulted her, was a white male, and this is her way of getting back at the white male power structure. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, 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 I'm just trying to figure out what would be her motivation for... Uh, you know, being so passionate about black history and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, writing books such as this. Perhaps it's very academically, uh, uh, you know, maybe maybe it's great academically. Maybe it's great for grants. Maybe it's great for tenure. Maybe it's great for book deals. Who knows? It might, uh, white people dealing with racism is very lucrative business. It's not it lucrative for black people, but it's very lucrative for white people. Plus, that they get the, they, they're able to have this <laughs> reputation of being an anti-racist. I mean, what's better than benefiting from racism because you're a so-called anti-racist? I mean, you're getting kudos and pats on the back from black people or white people in your circle. And I mean, it's, if I was a white person, I think I'd be an anti-racist. I mean, I could make some money. <laughs> to, to, um, did, uh, hey, Gus. Did um did Dr. Wilson say that Timothy tried to apologize to her and she did not accept his apology? Hmm. After he said that um said that her work was pseudo scientific BS. No ma'am, I haven't I haven't heard of this. When the when did this happen? No, I was on a, one of the blog talk shows about a few weeks ago and I was having a discussion with one of the hosts and she was giving all of these rave reviews about Tim. And I was telling her, I said, no, I said, Tim is not what you think he is. I said, I could send you the podcast of a show that he did and what he said about Dr. Welsing. And she said, well, he, um, he was, they were in D.C. sometime last year, and he 
he apologized to Dr. Welsing, and but she refused to accept the apology. So you might want to ask her that when she come on Sunday if he did indeed apologize to her. Will do. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> yeah. Ask her on Sunday. I'm cu- I would be very curious to hear. Uh, I'd be surprised she didn't bring that up uh, at some point. But yeah, we'll ask Sunday. We'll see Sunday. Okay. You know, wouldn't it be great if 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 that was actually hurting Timothy's credibility? I, I'm not saying it would, but I mean that might be a motivation if he did apologize. You know, but that would be great if um, if that was uh, taking some ducats out of his pocket. Yeah, because you're going to defame a well-known person like Dr. Wells and Mr. Neely Fuller, and you're using their work to go around and sprout your garbage. And you were to call this woman that a medically trained doctor call her such she's pseudoscientific BS? She had to come back and apologize. And I'm so glad that there's one black person that just put their hands up and walk away and said, oh, it's not even going to be accepted. Because she probably knew it wasn't sincere. I mean, I'm just saying. I, I'm not speaking Even if it was, I wouldn't accept it. But, uh, you publicly uh, defamed me like that. He's got a career to protect. That's the way I would see it, is it was simply his way of covering his butt. Well, it's like all white people, you can't believe a, whenever they open their mouth is lies, so you can't believe nothing that they say. You just know that this part would have gotten out because it was on Block Talk, and I'm sure everyone has snippets of the tape. It's public knowledge. You can go there and get the tapes. Put it out there, so I'm sure he knew he was going to get back to Dr. Welsing and other areas, and he just had to clean up his act. Hmm. Not to detour uh, from from this topic, but roughly, uh, Gus, what's the age of Professor McGuire? Uh, I think mid-30s, mid to late-30s, I think. Uh, I'll see if I can get... Uh, get pr- something precise, but I think mid to late thirties. Give me a second, and I'll I'll check. Me a few then, a few more seconds. So if you all want to <laughs> chat while I'm while I'm looking, feel free. Don't <laughs> have to uh, wait for me. I, I'll I'll say why I'm asking. I'm just wondering if this isn't like a uh, an IRA account, a sexual IRA account. Uh, you know, first of all, white women are losing their stock. I. Did you get the, I don't know, I know you're busy right now, but uh, Josh sent me, and I think he sent you an email of a discussion board where white women were complaining that uh, they're, that white men don't want them as much and that they keep fawning about all other ki- types of females except for clearly white females. And uh, and they had they they take a very codified position on it, which is that look, we're the ones that are subscribing to your blog. We're the ones who are buying the books. If, if I were you guys, I wouldn't be fawning all over these other females. You, no one seems to want us anymore. Well, we'll fix you. And um, I just 
I, I wish I could call to mind the examples, but it just seems like later in life, well, I can call to mind very personal examples in my own family uh, and friends of my father. Later in life, these uh, older white women like to pounce on uh, relatively financially successful black males with their credentials of liberalism and uh you know they can lose, they can leave the white man who's not treating them right in their minds or just you know they've been wanting their chocolate all these years and now it's their chance to get away and they'll be treated like a queen and they don't have to suffer any uh de-escalation in their standard of living and they get to to have that chocolate sex they've been wanting all those decades and you just put in the work and teaching civil rights and when the time comes when you're past your prime whatever that is for a white woman well you just make a lateral jump and you're good to go you have you've been you've been surveying the field all your associate professors all your professional connections and not to mention all those handsome students who've sat in those chairs in front of you and you have a whole inventory to choose from now I could be wrong but I don't think so. Not really, because I, I was looking at her blog site, and she she teaches at Wayne State in Michigan, and that's a predominantly black school. Mm-hmm. And she's a she's an assistant professor in the history department. <laughs> it looks like her age is probably uh, I'm guesstimating just based on when she got her BA. Because um, she doesn't seem like a non-traditionally aged student, uh, so I'm guessing from graduation date she's probably 34, 35. Do you see a photo of her? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you go to her blog, she's got several pictures. There's videos too, but yes, there's a picture on her blog where you can see her uh, at the dark end of the street. dot com. She has a big photo, and she has video too where you can see her. It, that sounds pretty salacious. Dark end of the street. I mean, I understand it's a book about rape, but come on. <laughs> Go ahead. There's tons of those. There's tons of those in the book uh, where she, the, just the the verbiage that is used reveals, a, like I said, that dark chocolate thing at the end of the book. It's, uh, it's tons of those. It's tons of those. Do you think that was subconscious? Because I don't. Oh, not at all. Ain't no coincidences or accidents, and definitely not on the sex thing. And she said dark chocolate, too. It wasn't even just chocolate. It was dark, late night dark chocolate. Sounds like those. And her omitting, oh, I'm sorry, I'll mute my line. I just wanted to get in that Strom Thurmond omission that she knew, it seemed she, at least she said she didn't know that Melba Patillo married a white person. That may or may not. And I find it hard to believe that she knows this much and put this together and doesn't know that she married a white person. Uh, that was not news to me. I didn't have to dig on that one. I knew that before I read her book. Um, but she did know, and she admitted Strom Thurmond, and she didn't put that in the book. I thought that was major. Uh, major omission to bring him up in this book and omit that, oh yeah, he would be another one. We could talk about him too in this book. Don't have the niggers around here and then he's going out doing the same thing. Just wanted to get that in. I will mute my line. No, no, wait. Darkendofthestreet.com or org? Com. Oh, hmm. dot com. 
Hmm. Yeah, because he did rape his um his maid when he when his daughter was born. He was his, the housemaid for the family that he had sexual relations with, and it happened back in the twenties. So he can't say this was consensual. Oh, yeah, a lot of people thought that Sean Thurman raped that girl. I mean, she was uh, she was yeah, fairly he did. young. Worked in the house, of course. Of course, what what was she looking at him for and want to have a consensual relationship at her age with him? Yeah. The girl was in what opinion. Either somewhere around like when she, Yeah. He, mm-hmm. he 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 raped that um but of course he's a well respected senator, revered segregationist, so they're not gonna put his information out there in the book to discredit bring discredit upon the family name. Yeah, you can't the family the acknowledged it. Like uh the family acknowledged it. The family isn't even, uh, you know, trying to lie on this one. The fam- after he's dead, the family even made a public statement that they acknowledged, yes, that he did uh, have sex with this black female. And she was 15 at the time. He was 22. That's what I saw online in the report. Um, so, I mean, you got that same age thing, well, like with the loving Kate. They made it sound consensual, right? You know, they, they always will. But a 15-year-old girl working as a maid in a well-respected, wealthy family home of a white family, what is she going to do? It's like what happened with um with Mrs. Parks. Here, is this man going to come and corner her in the house while she's babysitting these children and force himself upon her? So what do you expect is going to happen with a teenager who don't have that much know-it-all to say, you know, to back up and, you know, grab something to hit him with? And that was so common anyway for girls for uh, some, I read somewhere where people said they didn't want, you know, sometimes black people didn't want their daughters, you know, the, 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 the white male of the house would say, why don't you let your daughter come here and work with you? And they knew what that meant. They meant that this white male was going to probably wind up sexually assaulting the daughter. And mm-hmm. some would, you know, would try to avoid bringing their, their, their you know, their young daughters to, to that, to this job. But they knew what it meant. There's someone that called in uh, on the talk to you line, uh, top uh, Ankh Amin. Ankh Amin, uh, you had a hand up. Uh, I'm getting your line. I just wanted to read this passage. The reason I try to read is because I know, uh, because I used to be a black person that did not read about racism, so I try to read because I just assume that a lot of people who listen to the program uh, either don't have time to do a lot of reading or wouldn't read or that sort of thing. So I try to share as much of the juicy tidbits uh, from the books as I can from the books. Uh, I'm going to get the caller, but I did want to give one more tidbit on uh, the what was just mentioned about uh, Strom Thurmond's white rapists in the house taking advantage of their uh, black maids. I keep this in mind, everyone who saw the help. Keep this in mind because I think they omit. I had that in mind. I had that in mind so much reading this book to help, like white people coming out and getting famous doing these sort of uh, works. Anyway, uh, this is on page 165. Uh, On August 29, 1955, a day after J.W. Millam and Roy Bryant kidnapped Emmett Till, a wealthy white woman named Mrs. Lawrence asked – Uh, Ida May Holland, if she would babysit her granddaughter for the day. Ida May, as she was known then, frequently did babysitting and domestic work to help her mother, who spent her days ironing white folks' clothes inside their tiny tar paper shack. 
Since it was Ida May's 11th birthday, Mrs. Lawrence promised her $2 and a birthday bonus if she would come by their big plantation-style home later that afternoon. After Ida May played with the child for a bit, Mrs. Lawrence summoned her upstairs. Mr. Lawrence wants to see you and wish you a happy birthday, she said. Mrs. Lawrence called her into the bedroom where her husband, a wizened old man, lay beneath crumpled blankets. Mrs. Lawrence tore back the sheets, exposing what Holland called his old shriveled thing, a slimy white penis asleep on his pasty leg, end quote. Then she scooped Holland up, placed her on top of the bed, and quickly left the room. There's your uh, innocent white woman. The old man reached for Holland, pulled down her shorts, and snapped down her panties, and began to fondle her. She was terrified. Her mother, she said in her memoir, had repeatedly told her to never allow anyone to touch her down there. Holland screamed and beat her hands against the wall, grabbing and pushing at the same time, looking for something to hold on to. Lawrence asked the child if she was enjoying herself as if she were a grown woman engaged in a consensual act. No, sir, Holland replied, it hurts. The rape lasted for what Holland said seemed like a lifetime. I began to think I was dying, she remembered. When Lawrence finished, he handed Holland a $5 bill and told her to go downstairs when Holland opened the door and walked out. Mrs. Lawrence looked at her, as Holland put it, without expression, as if she'd gone somewhere else. But I knew, Holland said, that she knew the bull had thrown me. Very interesting language. Direct quote, that she knew the bull had thrown me. Holland's experience was a common one for many African-American girls and women working in white households. Indeed, she suspected the bull, in quotes, had thrown plenty of other girls her age. She was 11 at the time. Through sly innuendo, knowing glances, and telling silences, Holland said she figured about half the girls in Greenwood, maybe even the whole Delta, lived without daddies who knew the score about white men and kept their daughters safe by refusing to let them work in white households. Of those, she estimated that approximately three fourths were victims of rape. Folks used to tell how in the South, no white man wanted to die without having sex with a black woman. I'll read that one more time. Folks used to tell how in the South, no white man wanted to die without having sex with a black woman, Holland said. It was just seen as a part of your life, and if you were black, you were always at the mercy of white people. You didn't need to be sitting babies 
or cleaning houses to fall victim to a white man's lust, she remembered. We could just as easily be picking cotton or walking to the store or spending money in the white man's store when the mood would take him and he'd take us. Just like that. Like lightning striking. Like Fannie Lou Hamer, Holland understood that black women's bodies did not belong to themselves. They belonged to everyone, she said. Uh, it's 165-166. Uh, the person who called in, Ankh Amen, your line should be open. You're on the talk show line. Uh, Ankh Amen, did you have a question or a comment? Yeah, brother, I, I, I was having a nigga moment, and I was, uh, I uh, forgot or did not hear if, if, if there was a question of uh, why she, uh, or that she was compelled to write this book on uh, um, black women's uh, problems. Why did she um take the forefront on this or whatever you want to call it, back in and try to get in on it or whatever. Um, But uh, did she ever answer that question? Or if anybody ever heard her or or placed that question? Because I was trying to place that question online, but uh, the chat was uh, blocked. Can anybody hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. I didn't hear her mentioning anything. I don't know if I asked the question if why she wrote it. I've heard her canned response where she um it's a lot of black people love her. Um let me stop because that might be why she wrote it. Um she did say during the interview yeah. that she goes to black churches to speak. I thought that was a real asterisk moment. Um oh, but man. that sounds great. Yes, it does. Timothy's name was brought up already. <laughs> um, but yeah, she that might be enough. Like she's done a lot of radio programs and interviews with black people and it seems like, you know, black people, I mean, you know us, um, white Jesus, uh I mean, it just seems like uh the canned response but she says is that she heard um Gertrude Perkins' name mentioned and how integral uh her efforts to combat the white rapists, white racist rapists uh, who abused her uh, and trying to get them uh, to trial and all that, that that was huge in terms of galvanizing the civil rights movement and all that, Rosa Parks getting involved. And she said when she heard this, she didn't know who Gertrude, uh, Gertrude, um, sorry, she didn't know who this person was. She had never heard her name before. She, you know, was, how could I miss this? I'm supposed to be a historian. And she started researching and found out this whole legacy of, uh, rape and there she goes. She has she has another story that's online where her parents are talking about uh, they thought you know she was a little strange because she was so infatuated with all this uh, black history stuff and she's a white person um, that her parents kind of thought that was you know what are you doing you're white I don't uh, I don't understand but uh, yeah I would just leave it at that and saying that that black people um not being suspicious of her it seems like a lot of black people really think she's great love her work she's going to churches she's teaching at a i think 404 said that the university that she's at least is predominantly black it'd be uh could be refinement yep that's exactly what it is 
because I'm looking at her schedule of events that she has and where she has been, and it's showing in September she's going to Wellesley University, Gilman School, Baldwin in Birmingham, Michigan, then she's going to the University of Louisville in Kentucky and a couple of all Baptist churches in Detroit. And the blogs, that your sites that she's on, The Griot, The Roots, as well as AOL Black Voices, these are all these black, so-called black papers that are owned by mainstream white publications that has been giving her all of these features. Uh, and that's why, that's why I say it's strange, you know, that they always teach, you know, during that period, that civil rights period, because you got to remember that was the transitional period from, from like real overt violent racism to, 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 mm-hmm. to what we have now, the refinement of racism. So, you know, that that period of time was 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 the transition into what what's going on right now. And I noticed but, that uh, that that none of these. Uh, um, white historians transition to what's going on today and the killings and the rapes and the things that happen today, they don't make that that correlation, you see, and to uh, place it into a, uh, to what we're trying to get white supremacy replaced with to a justice thing. And uh, they don't make that transition that this injustice is still going on today because of the injustice that was going on yesterday. It hasn't and, been resolved. Uh, nothing has been resolved. Right. Nothing is resolved, and they're, they're still protecting each other. Mm-hmm. You know. So, what I mean, I'm... maybe it's like, a, like, a, like they say, you know, um, uh, uh, I was listening to one Listen to uh, yes, uh, one of the listening in, and, and uh, you guys talking about uh, that movie, uh, uh, Fight Night. <laughs> Maybe it's like that, you know, white, white. Um, what is it? Is it Fight Night or uh, Fight Club? Fight Club. Say yes, it. Fight Club. You know, it's, you ain't supposed to talk about the white club. You know, <laughs> you know, and and they're still trying to keep each other's secrets. You know, but they'll talk about uh, the slave or the transition uh, or the reconstruction or refinement. They'll talk about that refinement period. But uh, it's like, uh, oh, yeah, that was back then to make you seem like, oh, yeah, it was back then. Oh, you know, we, we're, we've made some progress. Yeah. But that was back then. And this is what happened back then. As though it's ain't happening now, you know. And it's still happening now because we got a lot of cases just recently, the Dominique Strauss-Kahn case. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, it's still happening. You know, sometimes I wonder if if all of these white people are somehow enlisted in the army of just controlling the dialogues and controlling the imagery of black people so that black people, uh, like, for example, if, if I had written the book that she, she, that she wrote, I doubt that I would have gotten as much credits or awards or media coverage. So it's almost like even when it comes to our stories, white people now are you know are still in charge of our stories, still in charge of our imagery, and that's just a refined form of white supremacy. You know, I so, believe. You know, I, I agree with that. 
I agree with that because I suspected that same thing. Uh, I think I placed a question similar to that on my uh, Facebook today, uh, how these well, the whites or these uh, white people, white supremacists, are always in position to carry our stories or to have our stories, but then write about them in such a way as so yeah, it's not really that serious, uh-huh. you know. And then don't really pursue it up like they'll pursue up that white girl that was killed in the Bermuda or whatever that place was up, and uh, they finally found her body. And uh, I'm like, man, they're still talking about this white girl. And when they run but out, they don't. yeah, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Uh, no, you go ahead. But, you know, yeah. I, I was just going to leave out with that because, I, I, you know, they, they can still follow the progress of these people. But this, the straw, uh, whatever is this, this, this white man's name uh, from, uh, what is it, France mm-hmm. he's from? Wherever he's from when he, uh, the, to the sister, oh, well, you know, hey, she's just a, she's just a hooker. Uh, you know, it was consensual. Yeah. Uh, I'm like uh, when I stay in hotels, I'm, where are these women at? You know, <laughs> it's yeah. you know. I mean, wow, you know. But it never happens to me, and I don't think I'm an ugly guy. So I'm, you know, I know I look better than this guy, you know. But this, you know, I'm like, get out of here, man. It was right. He knows it was, and they just. They protect this guy. I mean, they protect, and, and even his own wife is protecting this guy. And I don't understand. You know, I, I, I'm I'm still like a, you know, a bit, I guess I still think like a nigga or whatever. I don't know. But uh, oh, she has a vested interest. You have to look. If, if this man was the former IMF chief, and he's a potential presidential candidate for France. Then she looks at being a first lady and being getting all of the trinkets that goes with it, traveling around the globe representing France. So of course she's going to protect her investment. Well, yeah. Well, see, then that that uh, that goes to to our uh, assumption that um, that they're participating um, to control our story. And I think is to is to dissolve the history of of the slavery and what they did during slavery. Uh-huh. Like they want to get rid of the nigger, the nigger word. Okay, I don't think we should get rid of the nigger word at all uh, because it's it's a direct tie into what they done. Okay, that word is is the evidence. It's, it's part of the evidence. And if you get rid of that word, and and now, okay, what do you replace it with? You see, what well, they're never going to get rid of that word. word. They're not going to well, get rid of. Well, that's what I mean. I'm just saying, we shouldn't let them just get rid of the word. It should always be a negative word. We should be trying to change it around because it is part of the history, okay, 
we shouldn't be trying to replace it with this, replace it with that, and, and uh, give them too much power. Arguing about all that silliness when it's a part of the history, and we should keep it there where the history is and say, hey, dude, yeah, you know, and if they get a hold and, and, and try to dissolve this word, we should keep it around just to basically spite them. Just say, hey, yeah, we're still here. We we ain't forgot. You see, no matter how much they they try to get more black people to try to disagree with us, uh, but, you know, because we if we have the knowledge that we know that they're trying to undermine who we are uh, and try to take away that the history and hide their history and try to then uh, I think that's this is what I think they're doing trying to take away the history part of, of what they did and try okay. to basically make it seem like it's all us now. You see? They're trying and to make it, it into a story. Trade places. Trade places is what I'm saying. Trying to play trade places and say, okay, hey, here's what you're doing now, but, you know, uh, we never did that back then because guess what? Our kids are going to grow up and they're never going to know the true history, Okay. My child came in today and told me that her history teacher said Americans, uh, uh, what was the question? She wanted to know who, how did the first Americans get here. And I guess my daughter told her that black people were already here. But then she said back to her, no, black people were, were only brought over here as slaves. Huh. So now we got to send the book of Ivan Van Sertima in to the teacher with the pictures in it and say, okay, who are these people? <laughs> who are these bills? You know, what is this evidence here to say, okay, that you're right and we're wrong? So, you know, we got to go through arguing with the teacher. And I'm like, I'm, you know, I make my daughter read it on her own. Just put down what the teacher wants you to put down and <laughs> we we'll know the truth, you know. But I, I just want to send that book in just to spite the teacher, just to say, you know, you're not dealing with people that don't read. Well, okay, you should just make a read. visit into the classroom and see what books that they're teaching from and just have a visit with a counselor. Oh, yeah, she had the book. She so had the I book. Uh, she got a little book. I did show up if I had a disagreement, and I would sit down and go through the books and say why. They were not going to do certain things. But speaking of the rewriting of the history, we are seeing where a lot of whites are writing, like Taylor Branch, for instance. He's doing a lot of books about the civil rights struggle. This is a white man. He wrote a lot of right. books about Dr. King, never met Dr. King. He's going through the archives, researching Dr. King's papers, and this man is writing volumes of work on Dr. King. This is the kind of revisionist history that we are having which is why I took an offense with this monument that they built for Dr. King in D.C., because here it is that we having some Chinese people import the, <laughs> yeah. the product and brought it over here, built by Chinese, Chinese labor, and 100 years from now, this is going to be written in a history book that some Chinese, this was made in China, that black people in this country couldn't even come up with the talent to make a monument in the National Hall oh, for this revered civil rights leader. That's, that's not true. Uh, there were, uh, this was on the Madison show. Not only did they have the stuff that 
they couldn't they couldn't uh they didn't want to get the guy. He they he put uh the guy that the sculptor uh uh offered his services for free but they free. yeah I know Gilbert Young him. and um Ed Dwight. Right, Gilbert yeah, that's his name. And then and then also white people were going offer to the offer the stone for free. Yeah, the granite for free. Or something like and that. And they turned it down. The King and family would agree they turned right, it down. They turned it down, went to China. Nobody could understand what the world was going on. But we knew, we know what's Money. going on. So yeah. racism, white supremacy. Right, exactly. You don't let, and, you don't let black and they'd rather have somebody else doing it instead of black people showing off their talent mm-hmm. and doing it for when we should have took it over. So I I I'm not going there to see that ever. I'm not either, that's what I said. Big time. It's about the mistreatment of black people and and, and rubbing it in our faces. I mean, this is their entertainment to humiliate mm-hmm. and and confuse and victimize black people. They and they have us argue insult. about it. Right? They knew it was have an us arguing to about not, it. to not let us do our own monument. They knew that was an insult, and yep. they knew that some of us wouldn't understand it, and they knew the ones that did would feel frustrated and helpless. And this is what they want. They want us to suffer. They want us to be mistreated. So they did it just to do it. I don't think it was just the money. I think it was just the idea of shortchanging and mistreating black people once again. I also to humiliate you because I got into a Twitter argument with Roland Martin because he really he got (laughs) on my last nerve. Oh, that's so funny! (laughs) You only get 140 (laughs) characters. How you get an argument on Twitter? (laughs) We went we went back and forth. Uh, Gus, he he threatened me. He said, he said, okay, if you said one more thing, I'm going to block you from my site, and you're not going to be able to come back in here. Well, I finally cornered him with a final argument because I told him, I said, first of all, Dr. King didn't even want this monument. I said, what you right. did, because he, first of all, he wanted to call me a fool. I said, Roland, I said, you don't even know me. I said, what you call me, a fool? And we went back and forth because I said, first of all, if you read the rest of Dr. King's speech, in that speech he re- it, it, it spoke about the insufficient fund check that was returned by the American to the black people as being insufficient funds. Right. So we were wasting time speaking of a dream. I said, we were in a nightmare. What, you were not talking about reparation. Dr. King spoke of reparation in that speech. So that shut him up right then. He haven't responded back to me since I put that in and I sent it back to him. You see, he's 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 full of hot air, Roland. And he's gonna bully you yeah. when he thinks that he can get get around you, but when you corner him, then he's gonna shut up. <laughs> you know, I'm just suspicious of anybody that that uh is, is that has any kind of exposure on major media. I mean, you know, I just find them suspect anyway. Me personally. Yeah, I learned that with Tavis Smiley. Oh, yeah, we're in it now. Never mind. I was going to go uh, five minutes, but we have ventured into talking bad about black people. And, um, yeah, I'm real uh, oh, I'm, not oh, in. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm, oh, no, it's no worries. No worries. Part of our uh, victimization. Um, no indictment. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, the problem is not Tavis Smiley. The problem, white, white people. people. Right on. Um we will uh, the Dominic Strauss Kahn case. I'm glad that came up. Uh, we will be back on Sunday. Excuse me, Saturday. Saturday. Sorry, we'll be back on Saturday, um, September the 10th. Um, we have a black male listener in the area of the world known as France. Um, I kind of kicked myself, but I remember Dr. Welsing, no beating up on yourself as a victim. You know, just do the best you can. Understand. Uh, but I forgot yes, that we have yes, uh, a source in France uh, that we could have tapped and been, you know, hitting him to give us on-the-ground reporting of uh, what the white people in that area of the world were saying 
uh, when the case went down and all that. But uh, better late than never. This Saturday, uh, black male area of the world known as France. Um, longtime listener. He's called in before. Um, he will be reporting on the Dominic Strauss-Kahn case, what he's seen from that end, uh, the behavior he's been observing from the white people, how they're reporting it in the media uh, in France, uh, as well as just his views on racism, white supremacy. Uh, he, too, has done a lot of uh, uh, traveling um, around uh, so-called Europe as well as the continent of Africa. And uh, right in line with the subject, of course, the sex thing came up, and he said uh, – he went to Belgium, area of the world known as Belgium, and uh, the white people there were doing the same trifling antics, uh, trying to get black females in bed and all that. He said that they had uh, the mandingo. I think he even used the term mandingo. <laughs> he said that they have those over there, trying to get you to have sex with their wives and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, world system this Saturday. Uh, the uh, pro- oh, it's it's updated and it's accurate on the program page. Uh, if you look, the program for this Saturday is at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, and 12 noon Pacific. Uh, black male in the area of the world known as France. Uh, he'll be on the program, and then of course this uh, Sunday, uh, Neely. Fuller- oh, I don't even have that up yet. I'll I'll put that in. But Neely Fuller uh, will be on before Dr. Welsing on Sunday. Uh, it'll be Neely Fuller at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, and then Dr. Welsing will be on at 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, 4 p.m. Pacific. Did I say that right? Mr. Fuller will be on at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Dr. Welsing will be on at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, Sunday, 9-11. And uh, definitely make sure we ask about the apology from uh, Timothy, don't drink the Kool-Aid, because that would be uh, good to know. Um, before we wrap up, I did want to make sure uh, that I get in an anecdote because I remember this from uh, Mr. Wicket, his uh, counter-racist uh, book reviews. Uh, he did a review of King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror, and heroism in colonial Africa. Uh, this book has been mentioned before on the program uh, several times, but there's a passage in the book that I thought was uh, just on the money for today, world system and white people's sexual perversions is everybody. It's women, children, uh, males, uh, white people enjoy rape, period. Um, this is uh, page, page, oh, it doesn't have the page number. I'm looking at it online, and I'm not uh, immediately coming up with the page number, uh, but this is Adam uh, Hosschild. His name, I'll spell it H O. C-H-S, child, C-H-I-L-D. But he writes in King Leopold's Ghost, and this is about white supremacy in the Congo, how Belgium, I just mentioned that, white people in the area of the world known as Belgium go to the Congo. They cut the population in half, just brutalize uh, black people. They're chopping off hands and, I mean, just ugly white supremacy. The uh, The sexual deviance follows. Uh, This is directly from the book. During this period, a scandal erupted in France when two white men were put on trial for a particularly gruesome set of murders in the French Congo. To celebrate Bastille Day, that's like July 4th in France, to celebrate Bastille Day, one had exploded a stick of dynamite in a black prisoner's rectum. Mm. 
copying Leopold, the government tried to calm things down in 1905 by sending to Africa a commission of inquiry. No one punished, no tears, just, oh well, stick of dynamite in a black male's rectum. And you can fast forward 1905 to Abner Louima, Pulp Fiction, however you want to go, the sexual deviance lockstep with white supremacy it is a core aspect and like i said i don't care what any white person has to say i really don't care what any non-white person has to say when you have proper context and understanding of the behavior of white people worldwide especially when they get to the bedroom that's all you'll need as to understand why you do not ever want to engage in sexual intercourse with a white person period uh, if anyone has anything they would like to say, take two minutes. We can ride. Uh, we'll be back this Saturday. I'm so thankful to have three days off to relax. Y'all have anything you would like to get in? Uh, take two minutes and we'll wrap. Gus, is uh, Mr. Pryor going to be coming on? Because I know you missed that show with Talk Shoe Page. It kind of messed you up. Is he going to reschedule to come back? That was uh, the agreement. We were supposed to uh, just get a different uh, date because he's, you know, pretty busy with his schedule. And he has a new, uh, he had a film coming out, a documentary film uh, around sports that he's working with. But yes, we're supposed to reschedule and make that happen. Um, as soon as I get a date, I will get it updated on the page. And also, um, um, Dr. Johnson, because they're supposed, to, they're trying to push this pedophilia. They're trying to update the DSM to make it normalize it so he might be someone that you might want to get on your show with the pedophilia thing they're trying just like on this they're they're meeting and they're trying to normalize it to make it seem along the line of like a sexual dysfunction that it's okay and they're trying to update the dsm so that's one of the steps that they're taking towards updating it which dr johnson Omar Abdullah. Oh, <laughs> right on, right on. Yes, um, uh, I, that's probably a pretty easy one to get uh, Umar Abdullah Johnson back. I think we can probably knock that out. Is Cree still on? Still on the line? Uh, no, ma'am. Oh, she's already left. Good. I was going to ask her about a um, couple because she had on a guest and when you were speaking about what happened to that young child where the wife put that put her in the bed with her husband and she was standing outside the door listening to all that his, her husband was doing to this child. That reminds me of a guest that Cree had on her page. I don't know if the other listeners had a chance to l- listen to that. Her name is Scotty something with the name of the guest that she had on earlier in the week. Scotty Lowe? Yes, she did a program where... White people do these crazy things, and that sounds like they were. That was in their vernacular before it even came into, before we even knew about it. Because I never knew about it. This was the first time I'm hearing about such activities, and that's what it sounds like that this woman did. She just deliberately put this child in there to be mistreated, and she just stood out the door and got off and just hearing this child scream and holler. Pretty much. That's uh. Yeah, I think that's from what I read. Yeah, that's she did that purposely um, to have this child be raped. Yes, that was the impression that I got. And uh, so long history of that uh, behavior, long history. Um, Scotty Lowe, she was a guest on 
uh, Crease program. Uh, she was actually one of her first guests. Uh, I suspect she rebroadcasted that program because I listened to that <laughs> live when it aired uh, in '09. But I think she rebroadcast that episode so people could access it. So it should be uh, in her archives. But it originally aired. Uh, to the summer of 2009, but yeah, it's she has a lot. Scotty Lowe, I'm talking about. She has a lot of information about the same barbaric, savage conduct of white people uh, sexually. Uh, and that program she did with Cree gives a lot of that information about. Again, just that's really all you need. Just the history of their conduct. Have a better understanding. Lockstep, you will understand why you, you do not want to be in bed with white people. Um, yeah, with the with that, that was our two. Uh, thank you, everybody, for dialing in. Uh, appreciate the questions and commentary. Again, we'll be back this Saturday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, black male, less confused black male uh, from the area of the world known as France. Uh, the DSK, Kate, will definitely be talking about that uh, and uh, other topics related to white supremacy. Uh, invest if you think the program is constructive and definitely share the links. Uh, we are under serious assault here at TalkShoe. You can see by the uh, racist graffiti on the front page. Share the links so that people will know uh, if you think this is constructive. And a special thank you, uh, Ms. White and Mrs. Abram. Uh, they uh, were super duper on the spot to help me get some material facts to Dr. Welsing. I think she's going to try and include it in her uh, institute. I guess if there are people in the D.C. area, Dr. Welsing, her institute will be this Thursday. You should go uh, check it out. She should be talking about the Norway terrorism incident as well as the U.K. riots uh, this Thursday at the Welsing Institute, D.C. Context of white supremacy signing out. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately.